Hey guys, Ben here with the I Don't Drink Coffee podcast. Before we get started, Lucas and I want to attach a disclaimer. Our guest, Scott Morgan, joined us via computer all the way from Germany. We tried a new app that we've never used before and forgot to tweak a few settings. One little setting, actually. So the audio from Lucas and I is not that great. Scott's audio sounds great, so that's really what matters in this awesome episode. We contemplated contacting Scott to completely redo the podcast, but decided against it. This episode was far too good to just throw away and start over. And you'll see why. So kick back, relax, and enjoy the show. One more thing. This episode is brought to you by Blackline Insurance Group. Have yourself a great day. And we're back. Thanks for joining us. Again. I don't drink coffee podcast, Ben Klein, Lucas Johnson. We have a special guest, very special guest, all the way from Germany. We're at in Germany. I'm in Kaiserslautern, so I'm on the west, kind of in the western corner. If you look where Luxembourg, Germany, and France come real close together, I'm right there. Scott Morgan, Sergeant First Class in the U.S. Army. He's a water purification specialist. Not really. <laughs> That's a, in the army now. If you've never seen that movie, you should go watch it. That'd be fun. Scott, thanks for coming to the show, man. Yes. Thank thanks you. for having me. You're, uh, Happy to. What time is it? What time is it there now? It is uh, 10 minutes after 9 p.m. now. So it must be 2 o'clock here. It is, yes. Yeah. 10 minutes after. He's seven hours ahead of us. Yeah. His, kids, his kids just came in, his daughters. He's got two daughters. They just came in and gave him a kiss goodnight. Yes. Yeah, so what's the future like? what I want to know. You know I mean, is it, is it more awesome in seven hours? No. So if your future is anything like what it was here, it's cold and wet and dreary outside and there's no football on and baseball hasn't started yet. So it's kind of miserable. And sounds like what you got to look forward to. Yeah. <laughs> it's March 1st, 2020. And we should have did this yesterday, which was uh, February. Oh, yeah. On leap, leap year day or whatever you call it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had to do an extra day of paperwork because of that. Really? Yes. Yeah. So, have a great day with that. Anyway, so, let's get right into uh, getting to know Scott. Let's, uh, let's talk about what this episode is brought to you by. Oh. Sponsored by okay, Blackline okay. Insurance Group. Visit blacklineinsurancegroup.com. Email ben at blacklineinsurancegroup.com. Text, message. Uh, call 918-558-4656. Any kind of insurance, life insurance, health insurance. Uh, I just recently did a uh, quote on a marijuana dispensary and a grill, so I'm really looking forward to diving deeper into that. Because guess what, Scott? What? Since you've been gone. Because Scott used to live here in Oklahoma. He's not from here. He's from... Uh, Terrible state called Texas. The great state of. <laughs> but uh, marijuana is legal now in this state, if that's hard to believe. I know you know. Just medicinal, that. right? Not recreational. Is that right? Right. So far. Is there a difference? Yeah. There's a difference. You just got yeah, to pay, pay to have a. Oh, the, the growers are going to know that are they. Uh, there's a lot of people in the industry that don't know when it goes uh, recreational because their prices are going to yeah so anyway scott's in germany 
what are you, uh, what would you call it? Stations in Germany? Right yep. Now? Yeah, I'm stationed here. We do uh, uh, three-year tours overseas, basically. If you're, if you're accompanied by your family, you do three years. So I brought my wife and kids over. We've been here. We're actually like right at the halfway mark. So I've been here a year and a half now. What if you're not accompanied by your family? Um, so it depends on where you're going. Over here to Europe, um, and actually I kind of lied to you, I guess. It was two years if you were on your own. Um, but they just changed it to where it's three years flat for Europe. But like, uh, so if you go to South Korea, where we have a lot of soldiers, if they go unaccompanied or they're not married, they they just go for 12 months, whereas accompanied soldiers go for two or three year tours, depending on what they're doing. Well, what's the, I mean, without digging too hard on uh, what's going on with you, what's the reasoning for it being longer for people with families so that you're, you have more time to like adjust and be there or? Um, I think it's more of a, uh, it's kind of an incentive thing. So um, you can come over here by yourself for a shorter term if you've got something going on with your family back in the States or, but it costs money, costs a lot of money to bring uh, family members over and it's an agreement between the government. So I'm here on what's called the SOFA, which is the status of forces agreement. And it's literally an agreement between the U.S. government and the German government. And part of that SOFA is what their economy can support. So they have to be careful of how many family members come over and how long they stay. Cause we have like special tax statuses and things that we don't pay all the German taxes. Um, you know, wow. kind of different weird stuff like that. Yeah. Huh, man, there's a lot. I didn't think about it until you started saying that there's a lot goes into that. Then. A ton. Yeah. It's a big state department issue. It's a very political and um, I mean, it's, there's a million different, you know, webs kind of interwoven together that, that make up all the different stuff that all the different rules that are required for us to, to be here for, you know, what allows us to stay here, what we can do while we're here, all those different kind of things. Wow, man. I, that's a, uh, I learned something. See, I'm, this is awesome, man. I didn't know that. And, you know, and I, I have a family member that's, uh, was in the, has been in the military for what, 15 years, I think something like that. And, uh, he was stationed over in England for a while. Yep. And, uh, but he was a single guy at the time, and to be honest with you, he was young, and we didn't really get into uh, all the, the ins and outs of how and why he was over there because it was, you know, when he came home, we were just boozing it up, and, you know, trying to celebrate. Yeah. There, so. uh, yep. That's interesting, man. That's crazy. So three years, um, do they give you – do you have, like, a choice of where you want to go? or do, I mean, do you choose to go, like, where you are? Uh, yes and no. Um, so with everything in the army, you always get kind of a vote in what you're doing. You at least get to like have some preferences, but the number one vote, the number one rule is what the army needs. Um, so you could have, you know, you'd have a wish list 10 miles long and a million reasons why you should get number one on that list. Um, but if the army needs you elsewhere, that's where you're going to go. Um, so I wanted to come to Germany and I've been in the army long enough. I kind of know, I guess you could call it gaming the system, but I know where to kind of find myself a place and then so whenever I call I know I'm calling to fill a need so I call we call it branch it's kind of the headquarters that does all the assignments so I'll call them and like whenever I decided my wife and I decided we wanted to come here um, I, I found where we wanted to go and I found the opening I wanted to fill and called them and hey you've got this spot opening up I want to fill that and I meet all the requirements for it so it's too easy for them to hit the button and and put me on the assignment Ah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Hedging the bets there. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Huh. That's cool. Well, uh, so what exactly are you doing or doing in uh, in Germany? What exactly well, does a normal day look like for you and, 
And well, uh, so I'm not a I'm not a high speed water purification specialist, like you said. Um, yeah. I I'm military police. I have been for seven. I've been in 17 and a half years now. Um, so I'm in a I'm in a, a military police company, which is a, a unit about a, of about 170 soldiers. Um, and we do all the law enforcement for U.S. personnel in this area on all the American bases. Um, I happen to be stationed in the largest condensed area of American forces in Europe. And I'm like 99% sure that that's accurate. I know for sure in Germany, there's more Americans here uh, than anywhere else. So we've got the law enforcement commitment for all of them. Um, and then, and me specifically, um, I don't do a whole lot of actual like policing anymore. I'm the company operations sergeant. So um, I'm the, uh, as far as the enlisted side of the, you know, there's officers and enlisted. Um, as far as the enlisted side of the house goes, I'm the second, um, I guess, second highest ranking enlisted guy in the company. And um, I'm in charge of, so I get all the orders that come from on high. I make sure that we execute them, that we have the right people in the right places. Um, making sure that the, the, the soldiers that are actually executing the missions have what they need, all the coordination. Um, I could probably make it sound really interesting, but it's, it's really, uh, I, I spend a whole lot more time behind a computer these days than, than I used to, but kind of the nature of the beast, you know? So if, if it was an action movie about cops, then you would be the boss in the, in the office yelling at the, the, the main characters? I would be, so you know, there's the boss that yells, but then there's always like a dude in a smaller office that's the one that's like, you know, pulling his hair out and, and going crazy because he's the one that's actually got to make all that. I'm that guy. Oh, you're like the, you're like the police yeah. commissioner. You're the right. boss of yeah. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, um, Hopefully I get promoted soon. I'll get to be the guy in charge that gets to do the yelling and I'll just have somebody like me that I just beat down every day. Okay. <laughs> so um, I grew up mainly in Amarillo, Texas. Um, I went to school there all the way through fourth grade. Um, and then I moved to San Antonio for a little while. And then I moved to Dallas through junior high and part of my freshman year. And then wound up moving back to Amarillo um, and graduated from high school there. My senior year is when 9-11 uh, happened. Um, so like I was in football practice, uh, morning football practice, whenever 9-11 went down. And that's kind of what got the ball rolling um, as far as me joining. I didn't join, like I didn't like go down to the recruiting station that day or anything. Um, but I wound up joining about, I don't know, six or eight weeks before I graduated high school. And they have the delayed entry program. It's still a thing. It's how most people do it. Um, so I had my contract signed the whole deal, graduated high school, um, and then went off into the Army in August of 2002. Um, went to sign up to be an MP. My dad's a cop. His dad was a cop. My whole deal was I was going to do one contract, get out and be a cop. Um, so joined, uh, did my five, almost six months of training, went to airborne school. And then my first duty station was Washington. And I showed up there in February of 03. And then um, I was in Iraq whenever OIF-1 kicked off and um, did a year there. Um, I've done three total combat tours. So I did uh, the first year of Iraq. I came home, I was only home for six months, um, just enough time to get married basically. And then went back for another year. Uh, from November of 04 to November of 05. Um, I don't know, you want me to give like the Reader's Digest version of the last 17 years, I guess? Yeah. The, okay. So uh, came back from my second deployment um, and I was, uh, I got assigned as a police investigator. So I worked in civilian clothes for like two years. I did uh, a lot of narcotic 
uh, unit stuff. There was some gang problems up where we lived um, that I worked on. And then um, that's whenever I decided to stay in the Army and um, became a drill sergeant, got selected to go uh, be a drill sergeant and train brand new soldiers for two years. Got done with that, moved to Texas. So um, that's what we wanted to go back home to Texas. So I went to Fort Hood. As soon as I got there, they put me on a plane to Afghanistan. Spent a year in Afghanistan, um, came back, was thinking I was going to get three or four years, uh, kind of hanging out at home in Texas. Got put on recruiting orders, wound up in McAllister, Oklahoma for three years uh, recruiting, and then went from there to Georgia. While I was in Georgia, I deployed, I, I say deployed in like quotation marks. I had to go to, I went to Kansas for like five months and worked in the U.S. disciplinary barracks, the big military prison. And then um, came back for just a few months and actually deployed here to Germany for nine months. Um, and then went home uh, back to Georgia anyways, where my wife and kids were. And I was there almost a year before we moved here, a year and a half ago. And that's the last 17 and a half years crunched into one. <laughs> wow, man, that's a lot. You're in Savannah, Georgia, right? Yeah, so uh, about 45 minutes west of Savannah, but yeah, essentially. And you and you lived here for a while, and how I was there I, for three years. Yep. And how I met you was through CrossFit. So you know the old yep. adage where it says, you know, CrossFit brings people together. It's true. It's absolutely it true. Really so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we. It, it's funny. So I was trying to figure out. I think so. Brian and I got your brother-in-law, Brian, and mm -hmm. I got to be really good friends really quick. And then you and I got to be pretty good buddies. And then, but I didn't know that you two were related until like i think it was we were hanging out at brian's house watching a fight or something and you showed up and i'm like oh hey man i didn't know you were friends with brian you're like well i am married to a sister like, oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not related and we're not friends but yeah i'm here <laughs> the reason why you didn't really know that's because i mainly worked out at noon at the yeah. time when most people are working <clears throat> right when most people are working so yeah uh, i didn't get to really hang out with you or work out with you that much because mm -hmm. of that you, you mainly worked out early in the morning, right? Yeah, I had to. That being a recruiter, especially in an area like Southeast Oklahoma, it's so spread out. Um, I used to put, I had a Ford Focus. I used to put like 1,300, 1,400 miles on it in a five-day week, pretty easy. Um, so I had to work out earlier. It wasn't going to happen. because That was your uh, work vehicle? Yeah, you had a little government let's Ford talk, Focus. Let's talk a little bit about being a recruiter. So dealing with the kids is, um, it's, it's really tough, but like that's the most rewarding part. Cause I mean, there's some amazing uh, stories out there. Like I'll tell you one in a minute. Um, but the, the hardest part of it is it's such a grind and, it, and what it is, and there's probably people listening and you guys may have even done it. It's high pressure sales is what it is. And you're, you're on for a number and, and you have to get that number and your bosses force you to, just you know work yourself to the bone trying to get it because and you know and it, i say it's high pressure sales but the army needs those people like that's why we're out there recruiting so hard we need those numbers um you probably saw in the news i think it was the year before last when the army missed its overall recruiting mission by a lot and it was a huge deal like that is a big problem with our national defense like, you have to get these kids and you have to get people into the army and you have to get the right people in there and so um the hardest part is it's like, you know, you could be on for, say you had to write two seniors this month. So you got to put two high school seniors in, like that's kind of what they want you to write. And 
if you if you write a senior and the other good category is a grad, so, so some kid that's, you know, say he's in college, kind of just messing around somewhere, um, and you write a senior and a grad, okay, that's awesome. You wrote two, but you didn't write two seniors. You need to go find another senior. Or you could write five the month before. As soon as the first hits, you're back on zero. Like, it's nobody cares. Get back to it. So it's a, it's a very challenging job, and the guys that are really good at it and really successful at that are really successful at it, I'm uh, I'm always kind of in awe of because I was not that good at it. Like I was successful, but I had to work really, really, really hard just to be successful. Like I never, I was never going to be recruiter of the year or anything like that. And I don't really have a passion for it. Like some guys do. There's some guys out there. That's just what they're born to do. And you got to watch them. I mean, they get both of you to join the army right now. And <laughs> they're just incredible at it. And and I just didn't have. That's just not my gift, I guess. But um, yeah, it was, it's thankless work for sure, you know, and you get a, you get, you get a, used to getting cussed out and yelled at by moms and, you know, thrown out of schools and, you know. Really? Thrown out of schools? Some Sometimes, yeah. Um, okay. If there's a bad experience with a recruiter, you know, because there's guys out there that do the wrong thing sometimes and, uh, you know, some recruiter from another service does something wrong in a high school, you know sends the wrong kind of text message or says the wrong thing to the wrong person. And they don't care that he was, you know, he wasn't in the army. He was some other service. He's a, he's a military recruiter and they'll tell you to turn around. And then your bosses will be like, all right, we well, need to go stand out there on the corner where they can't tell you to leave and wait on him to get out of school. But, like, yeah. Well, and to your, in to me, you're battling uh, a culture in the United States anyways, from, from my own perspective, like, I'm older than you guys, okay? So I graduated in 1995. So uh, in the time that I've been alive, especially since I got out of high school, the culture of teenagers, because I've got a 17-year-old son myself, um, mm -hmm. it's different, man. I mean, by and large, guys with the right attitude that would actually be what I would consider a good soldier or somebody that would be a good candidate for the Army or any, any branch of the military are getting to be scarce. I mean, yeah. you know, they're – there's a there's a fewer number to me. When I was in when I was in high school, there was probably and I graduated with seventy eight people. Um, there would probably out of the guys in my class, there would have been a solid ten of us for sure that would have been probably good in the military. That would have been somebody they're looking for. Now I'd say in my son's class, there's out of the kids that I've met of his, and they're not bad kids, but kids that would be uh, mentally, socially. Uh, set up for it to handle it or be guys that would be successful in the military there was there's probably 10 guys out of a thousand I yeah. mean, it's like it's way you know, the kids that I meet I'm just like I think about the I, I, in, in my own mind there's a certain level of toughness you know just like your personality no longer than we've sat here and talked I can see it I recognize it in people that would be you know that can handle these positions like you're in and there's guys these young kids Dude, they're not set up for it. You know, they'd get in there and they'd be that guy that you'd be like, you know, you would have to end up beating them down because you can't keep their finger off the trigger when you hand them a weapon. You know what I mean? They just can't get it. They won't get it. And that's, by and large, a lot of these kids that I meet, I'm just like, dude, you know, how have you lived as long as you have? You're 17 years old and I'm shocked. You know what I mean? How do you not die of the Tide Pods? You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sitting here... So, and I can, and that's what I'm saying while you were sitting there describing it, I can only imagine 
trying to find not only I mean I see you got a quota that you got to meet so you you got to do it by volume but you're at a disadvantage already because of the culture well what kind of kids are you looking for as a recruiter well so they've got to be the biggest the biggest uh things that you're always looking for is are they educationally qualified um are they morally qualified and are they physically qualified and there's no you know that's where you get those stories of you know people always talk about you know, recruiters lying to them and yada, yada, yada. I don't see how that ever happens because there's so much information out these days. But, um, you know, the biggest biggest thing people are looking at that the, the military is looking for is high school seniors um, just because of their age. They're young, um, you know, reasonably physically fit, uh, and they haven't had enough time to get in trouble. Because what I used to find or what I was shocked to find in southeast Oklahoma was, um, you know, some 17-year-old kid some of the smart could be one of the smartest kids you'd ever talk to, you know, can do chemistry and physics and college algebra and all these other things, but he got a felony whenever he was 14 or 15 years old, you know, and it happens a lot down there. Um, as I'm sure you guys are well aware of. And, uh, so, you know, now they're morally disqualified or, um, you know, and, and it's in the news a lot, but we deal with a lot of people that are physically disqualified, um, because they're, you know, overweight, or can't meet our minimum uh, physical fitness requirements, which really aren't that high. Um, and now it's a little bit uh, more stringent since even since I left recruiting um, of what they have to do. I couldn't even tell you what the exact requirements are, but um, the video game culture is kind of taking a lot of that, away, you know, the just the physical toughness away, the, the able to, to run and just do a few push-ups and pick up something heavy and carry it. Um, you know, it just, it, it is what it is. And, and so the army is now having to change and the, the military in general, we're having to change um, not necessarily the standards to get in, but the way that we go about achieving the standard that we want um, and the way that we teach things. And, and, and we as a, as an institution are having to kind of change what it is that we are looking for. Excuse me. I can see so that. I mean, I just from the, yeah. like I said, be knowing kids in that demographic that you're talking about um, in this area, and, and not even knowing, not even kids that have felonies, but just the the physical side. Of, yeah. There's a lot of kids out there that aren't doing anything anymore. You know, I mean, most, and like I said, even in my day, and I sound like an old guy talking, but I mean, uh, I am an old guy. But uh, in, in my time of, of when I would have been, you know, qualified for the military or whatever, a lot of kids were still they would do things like. Uh, haul hay or, or things that mm -hmm. kept me in decent physical shape. That's yep. not a thing anymore. That's why I'm just like, I'm glad that DARP is out there uh, developing robots to go fight wars because we're running out of people to do it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. it's a literal thing. And, and I mean, I'm kind of being funny, but kind of not because, dude, I mean, I'm watching it and, and you know, I can only imagine what it's like on the coasts. You know, I mean, we're already. 20 years behind out here in the middle of the nation. I can only imagine what it would be in California or out on the East Coast. Yeah. Like New York or something like that. Yeah, we dealt, we dealt a lot with, uh, we had a high interest and had trouble getting the people with high interest qualified um, in volume. I'm not saying like everyone that we ran into that was interested wasn't qualified. That wasn't the case at all. It's more just the volume of it. Whereas, um, like I hear my buddies that were recruiters at either where they were out on the coast or, you know, up in the Pacific Northwest or in the like New England area um, where it's notoriously tough just because of, you know, mindsets and political leanings and things like that. 
um, they'll find a lot of people that are qualified with zero interest. So they have the, the exact opposite problem that we had. So, but I mean, it was all good. I met some amazing, there's a, so one of the first kids I saw join the army and I just kind of helped him join because um, my buddy had been basically working on him for about a year and a half. So he walked into the office the first time and he weighed something like 340, 350 pounds. And he's like five, seven. Oh, and, and he was, I think he was, they said he was 16 or 17 years old. And he walked in and he said, Hey, look, I know that I can't join the army the way that I am right now, but can you guys just put me on the scale, put the, we, we have a body fat measurement system that we do with a tape measure based off some different body measurements and, uh, and just tell me where I'm at. So my buddy says he sticks him on the scale, you know, he's big kid, 340 or whatever tapes him and you got to come in at like 22% body fat by that measurement. He was like 38% or something. And, you know, tells me, he's like, Hey man, so this is where you're at. This is where you got to get to. Um, you know, let us know how it goes. Kid. Okay. I will. So this kid walks out the door. My buddy Donnie tells me like, he's like, I, I knew I was never going to see this kid again. Like three months later, he rolls in about 30 pounds lighter, dropped a body fat percentage or two. And then it goes on for, like I said, about 18 months. And then right a few months after I got there, he comes in and he makes the weight standard and the body fat standard and ships off to the army. And as far as I know, he's still serving today. And I wish I could remember his dang name so I could look him up. But like, I met, I met several kids like that, you know, just kids that came from just dirt, nothing. And you've seen it out there all over Southeast Oklahoma where some of these kids come from is, you know, just terrible. I couldn't, you know, I had it kind of tough growing up a few times in my life, but nothing like what some of these kids came from. And, you know, and I got some of them, you know, I got to help them leave that and join the army and, and make, you know, incredible lives for themselves. Some of them are still serving. Some of them aren't. A lot of them I'm not even in touch with anymore. Um, some of them that didn't join the army, I'm still in touch with or doing out there doing great things. Um, so yeah, very rewarding job, but man, it was tough. It was really hard. Yeah, I can see that, man. Uh, and without exception, in my own personal experience, and I've known plenty of guys that's joined the military, several different branches of the military uh, for various reasons. And without exception, I've never seen somebody go and uh, at least do their, their initial enlistment and be done with that and not come out a better organized, well-rounded person. And, and, and man, I got no dog in this fight as far as the military goes. I've never went to the military myself. But I mean, everybody I've ever known, top to bottom, it was always a better person for it. So, uh, you know, it's something that I don't necessarily push on my kids necessarily, but I've always left it as an option for their life because it's it, it's something I wish I had done. And I'm sure you hear that all the time. I wish I, I should have joined the military. But I mean, legitimately, I've seen it turn people like you're talking about from bad circumstances or they have maybe some personal issues and mm -hmm. always at least helps with those guys when they come out. They're different guys. With, with that exception, those guys are different when they come yeah. back, always for the good, you know. Yeah, or at least the opportunity to, you know, the military is what it is, is, is legitimately whatever you make of it. You can go in with a piss poor attitude, you can piss the whole thing away and, you know, wind up getting kicked out, you know, other than honorably discharged, dishonorably discharged, whatever, and screw yourself over. You can show up and, and just get after it for that three, four, five years and, 
and really come out better on the other side, at least with better opportunities. I mean, the college money is unbelievable that you get from an active duty contract. It's unreal. Yeah. Yeah. My, I, my cousin, Dwayne, he's a pilot. Uh, and that's, uh, he he's always has good things to say about it. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. he's got, as sure with any job, uh, there's, there's things sometimes that he doesn't really appreciate about it, but uh, by and large, I mean, he doesn't feel like he wasted his life. And, and I know he was a good dude to begin with, but uh, you know, he's had, he's got, had a lot of good opportunities, seen and done a lot of neat things. It sounds like we're making a recruiting video right now, but, <laughs> yeah. I, but, but though, because of my cousin Dwayne, I have, you know, um, it's something near and dear to me, you know. I mean, I, I know him very well, so I, I I know he's an Air Force guy or was, and uh, so on that end, I know that he, he has nothing good things to say about it. And, and the decline I see in people, like you were talking about, the interest and those kind of things like that, I think it's unfortunate. I think a lot of people, uh, especially nowadays, they look at it as, well, I don't want to put my son in harm's way, and, yeah. and all these kind of things like that. And it's that mindset that I think are driving those numbers down. And it's unfortunate because a lot of people, whenever they can't seem to get control of their, their kid, you know, oh, he's out of control. He does other things. And used to, you know, they talk about, well, we sent him to the military, you know, a long time ago because they knew it would straighten people out because you, you know, you get in there and, and they put you on a, a path. You don't have a choice. You know what I mean? It takes that, um, that mama factor out of it. I hate, I don't know what else to say. I don't know how to say it politically correct or whatever, but. Uh, it takes that uh, oh you poor baby out of it and sticks you in there and goes hey man it's like man. this grow line up, up you know mm -hmm. and, and and that's what I mean about people come out of it and they're they're more well they're well adjusted person you know I mean you can see a difference in their the way they carry themselves even I mean you can tell I've been able to pick military dudes out and not on a, in a negative way I'm talking about in a positive way a lot of times you talk to somebody and you're already getting that vibe of this dude's been in the military. You know what I mean? If he he seems well organized and he's not, he doesn't mind making uh, some hard choices and stuff like that. A guy I work with a lot that doesn't works for a different company just found out he was in the Navy um, like three days ago. And I've worked with him for a year. I knew it. I knew he was in the military somehow because he was too willing and too able to make these hard decisions. You know what I'm saying? And that's that's something that all too often isn't talked about. Everybody wants to talk about. You know, we then go over there and get killed in duty. And that's true. That Those things are all true. But, I mean, uh, um, there's a lot of people in, in this life, and I don't mean – I'm not trying to cheapen anybody's life. I'm just saying, what else are you going to do? There's plenty of people in this world that, that would have been good in the military that think that doing nothing is going to keep them safe. You know what I'm saying? And I, myself included, you know. I mean, my mom, when I talk about going to the military, freaked out. You know, she was – My stepmom was hiding all the recruiting brochures, and, I, like, I couldn't figure out – why the military didn't want me and because my stepmom was hiding everything oh yeah because yeah. she was pissed she didn't want no to. no hell no she still gets mad whenever she talks about it like yeah. she's proud of me and, and all that but yeah yeah she can't she can't deal she doesn't like yeah, it man, the worst thing you could well i say the worst thing the worst thing for my mom was that i did well in the aspect whenever i took it in high school yeah, and, uh, you know, I had a, all that man. You might as well put a red beacon on your head for recruiters. Yeah. You could get on the ASVAB. Yeah, these things were, you know, they were around and everything. And uh, you know, my mom was like, and I shouldn't, you know, hindsight, I shouldn't have listened to her. I should have just done what I wanted to do because I was interested. I was that kid that was interested. You know, ended up getting talked out of it, and uh, a thousand times I could say 
unequivocally that it was it was the probably one of the biggest mistakes I ever made was not doing. It. You know, what I mean, as far as it organizing me, and you know, I've spent years later all over the map. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. trying to trying to get what I probably could have got out of three or five years in the military. You know, and I'm, now I had to get old and unable to run around that kind of thing like that before it finally it, it would have been taken care of early. I feel like you know. What I mean? Well, is that what you ran into most? Like. Is mama's parents? It's, yeah, um, I'm not going to say it was the most because I can't think of like, you know, there's just this one thing that was the biggest problem, but that was a big one. Um, that's the thing with, uh, so like I said, high school seniors, are the, they're, they're it for the military. That's what, every, you know, that's the best that you can grab. And, uh, and I don't care if the kid's 18 and, you know, already has his own apartment and doing whatever, he still needs mom and dad's approval. 100% of the time, not legally, you know, we can get them down there and get them signed up. But, you know, I mean, hell, I'm 36 and I still, you know, I still look for my parents' approval, you know. So I think it's like that with everyone. And there's, you know, and, and Lucas, you know, with your your kid or you have two sons, is that right? Yeah. yeah. And then Ben with yours with the ages that they're getting to now, those kids know nothing except for being a, a country at war. And, you know, and there's a, there's a little bit of hero culture out there with like veterans and everything, but for the most part, you know, on the new, it's, it's doom and gloom. They don't, they don't talk about the, you know, the MP squad that trained, you know, uh, uh, an Iraqi or an Afghani police station for nine months from nothing to, you know, now they're actually doing patrols and keeping their village. So they talk about the, you know, especially in the height of the wars was, you know, how many got killed today or this week or, or whatever it was, it's doom and gloom. So, you know, I get it. But, but yeah, that's a that's a big deal. You still got to get mom's approval every day. So, so when you're talking to the parents, that's basically uh -huh. what you talk about. If they brought that up, is you would say, "Hey, there's so much more to it than yes. seeing on on the news." Yep. Yeah, you had to. You had to let them know what reality was like. You know, and they would freak out because I was. Let's see, I got to McAllister in 2012, so I recruited from 12. So I recruited from like my 10th through my 13th year, roughly in the army and I had done at that point 36 months in combat and that would just, they couldn't believe that that was, you know, the case. And I would have to kind of show them what the reality of that is, you know, and you would never be standing in front of them if you had been in combat that long or like, yeah, hey, you're alive, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They don't. And, and I, I get it. I, I was the same way. Like whenever I went to Iraq in 03, I just assumed whenever we crossed the berm into Iraq that, you know, tank rounds were going to be going off and artillery and just <laughs> firefights like crazy. And it was really, really quiet and still for several hours, you know. And, I mean, we got into plenty of stuff. And I've, I've been in plenty of that. But it, all the time. No. But, yeah, it's not just like – I was like, man, how am I going to just get shot at for 365 days? And I didn't. Like, it's, you know. Tell us a little uh, – well, you were going to tell a story about – the recruiting and was that the, is that the story you were going to tell about yeah yeah the kid i was talking about i mean there's there's a million funny ones out there just crazy stuff that happens i would have i'm trying to think of something specific now but i mean recruit it was just a it was a you just herding cats all the time i was always driving around you know my so my area i wrote a few kids out of and i say wrote so we talk about writing contracts whenever you put a kid in the army you wrote that right. kid you know. so um but we were broken down into areas and I, I wrote a few kids out of McAllister, but my main area was our like real Southeast 
um, part of the of our responsibility. Which so I basically had like antlers east to Broken Bow and kind of Ida Bell and in those areas. So all those little bitty towns between antlers and Broken Bow were mine. And then I had Broken Bow. Ida Bell technically belonged to another school, but I used to go poach it all the time. And <laughs> so I spent a lot of time at Broken Bow. I'm sure you, uh, you know, I'm not to, I don't want to necessarily say anything bad about that part of the world. I'm just sure that there was some, uh, there'd be some kids that would be kind of backwoods down there. I could see. Oh that. man. There. Yeah. It's, uh, it's different for sure. I mean, it's sometimes it's, you feel like you're in a movie. I'm just, <laughs> it's you're nuts. Down there. That's the belly of the nation, man. I'd be like going in, you know, the mountains in Kentucky or something like that. I mean, yeah. I'm sure, the, I'm sure the good thing, though, is you find less kids that have been in trouble because there's less, you know, no? No. There's right. nothing to do. Yeah. I mean, you're yeah, they get, there's less police presence down there. You know what I mean? You can go down there and shoot guns off wherever, you know, and not get caught and yeah. go down there. and You get away with more stuff, I would think, in the rural part. I don't know. I don't know, man. I mean, I'm sure, you know, just like Wilberton was – 20 years ago, I mean, uh, it can be a little bit Wild Westish. I'm well, sure. you do run into, especially now, down in the Broken Bow area, you got a lot of people from Texas that are buying land out here. Mm -hmm. Big time. So I would think yeah, there's like a lot of... Yeah, all that. They got these really yeah. Nice so I would think you would, you would run into a lot of kids that, you know, are getting in trouble in Texas or whatever, so their parents move and think it's going to... I don't know. Maybe so. You get some of it, yeah. It was... Every day was different. There were no two days the same, man. It was, it was crazy. So you're in Bigfoot country down there, you know. Yeah. Bigfoot country. Yeah. Literally Bigfoot country. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, your time overseas. No, not okay. Germany. Let's talk about. Uh, Iraq that, and Afghanistan. Place, right? Yeah. So I did, uh, like I said, I did the initial, we call it, you know, OIF, Operation Iraqi Freedom. So I did OIF one and I was a brand new kid. I turned, uh, well, I turned 19 in airborne school. So I turned 20 in Iraq during, uh, OIF one. Um, and so we did, you know, the whole invasion. Um, and I, I wasn't like, uh, my unit wasn't on like the, we weren't the first ones crossing the berm with like third infantry division or anything. Um, we did a whole, during the invasion piece, we did a whole lot of su uh, supply escort runs trying to get ammo and stuff. Cause the, our forces were outpacing logistics. Um, and if you watch, you know, watch or read anything about the initial invasion, like that was the biggest problem we ran into was, you know, we couldn't get enough stuff forward because they were advancing so fast. Um, so we did a whole lot of running back and forth from Kuwait. Um, wound up in Baghdad and we wound up doing kind of a rotation. So um, have you guys, you guys know who Paul Brimmer is? Um, he was essentially the U.S. president of Iraq before their gover government was made sovereign again. Um, he's the one that announced whenever Saddam Hussein got killed, he said, we got him. Mm, yes. Yeah. So that's, so we got assigned to his security detail. Um, we, we essentially augmented like Blackwater security. So yeah, I know you know who Blackwater is, the contractors, and they've had a lot of controversy. So we augmented them. We would rotate between doing security for him, uh, different security for like, kind of his staff, I guess you would call it, different elements of the, um, of his organization. It was a coalition provisional authority. And then we would rotate through doing a quick reaction force, which we called QRF. Um, so you would kind of do 10 days on each one rotating through. 
Um, so like, so for, so I got to see some really cool stuff, like whenever he announced um, Saddam Hussein getting captured. So that conference room that he's in, I could drive you to it today in Baghdad. Um, it wasn't far from what's now the U.S. Embassy whether that, that uh, we operated out of. Um, but I was like standing in the hallway behind him of that room whenever he announced it, just as a part of his security detail. Um, and then, uh, so anyways, did that through OF1. That was a, it was a crazy deployment, but um, mainly just kind of getting to be a part of an invasion force. Like it's a, it's a, it's a whole different animal than what we do now with things being established if you were to go over there. Um, my second deployment, I got assigned to the security detail for our brigade commander, so a Fulberg colonel, um, and I was actually like his driver. And we put, I wish I'd, I had counted the miles that year, um, but we were essentially legitimizing the Iraqi police. So he was in charge of all the Iraqi police in Iraq for that year. And um, one of the commanding general of the of the forces over there at the time, like he called that year the year of the police because they got legitimized. So I got to see a lot of things. Um, one of the units that fell under us was in charge of Saddam Hussein's um, custody, basically, which happened to just be a couple blocks down the road from where we lived on the compound that we were on. So I've actually seen like Saddam Hussein in person a few times before he got hung. Um, Wow, that's great. Yeah, it, it's 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 a little wild. Like I've seen him in person, like from you know, I mean, I guess I've been, I don't know, within fifteen twenty feet of him from his cell, I guess. Um, when you saw him, he was yeah, the yeah, they had a so um, where we lived was called Camp Victory, and it was kind of backed up to Baghdad International Airport, which we owned at the time too. Um, and it's kind of funny, his cell was in one of the little sub buildings of one of his palaces of his own and they turned it into a cell like a high appropriate cool. yeah 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 it's kind of kind of wild and the fbi or you know some three-letter agency ran the site but we had some mps that lived there and did the actual security um for it so um that colonel that i worked for would actually have to go and like do inspections over there and make sure everything was up to snuff and all that so i'd tag along so that i got to see the man that was about it. And then my, my biggest one, though, is Afghanistan. So what's up? You never said, hey, what's up, Saddam? You never said. No, nah, no, nah, you didn't. Some, something that high biz like that, you don't uh, you don't mess around because it'll they'll, they'll snatch you up in a heartbeat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I'm sure you're probably not even on this. I would assume you're not allowed to talk to him or anything like that. I mean. I mean, did he? Just, um, I mean, I guess I could have if I if if there was a reason to. But I mean, he had guards. Literally, there would be two MPs right outside of his cell that kind of handled anything that was going on. So there'd have been nothing to really say, I guess. Yeah, I would. I wouldn't blame anybody for if I was in the neighborhood. I'd want to at least go by and, and see him. I mean, this guy that you got, you know, as far as putting a face on what would you say, terrorism, uh, anti-Americanism? Yeah. Well, it also, so it wasn't known that he lived there, like that that's where his cell was. So everyone assumed there's a high value. It's called, uh, I can't remember what they, oh, uh, I think it's, I can't remember the name. Anyways, on that same camp and, and out towards uh, Baghdad, towards the airport was like the high value camp at the time. That's where all the big names were. 
And that's where everyone assumed he was. Nobody even like, so there's like a unit living next door. They didn't know he was in there. Hell yeah. Hey, that makes sense because that well, the way, less, the better, less people know, the better. Yeah, I'd have four different spots where I would say, you know, we got yeah. who, but this is, you know, one of the guys out of the deck of cards is right over there. You know what I mean? So you <laughs> yeah. have to throw people off or whatever. That's what they had. Right. In the news, there was this deck of cards of people, you know. I have, I have it somewhere, like the one that they gave us. It's in a box, probably in storage in Georgia, waiting on me to come back. But yeah, I've got it. Just yeah. a, it was a blue deck of cards with people's faces on it. Yeah, dude, I've read enough books about it. But it was something that, um, of course, like everybody else in America, especially in the in the onset of it, it was very interesting to me because for for one, I mean, we were at war, you know, and for the I would say, I mean, there was Desert Storm and stuff like that whenever I was young, but. Um, like full-on actual, you know, high-powered military involvement. This was the kind of the the biggie, especially in my lifetime. So uh, yeah. I was I was into it, man. It was always one of those things that um, I read about, read a bunch of books about a, a whole bunch of stuff that happened over there, you know. And that that deck of cards thing was always like I was like, I wonder who could, you know, how does this how does this shit come to light, you know? Right. Or how do they? Uh, but you're always going to be out on look for these people because um they could be anywhere you know they didn't they couldn't necessarily track these dudes down of course for all we know they knew right where they were all the time and for for the common military guy it was definitely a way for them to say you look looking out for this dude you know because so, they were catching people i remember reading uh some stuff and watching some videos they would be out in the middle of absolute wilderness and raid someplace and one of the high-ranking dudes would be there you know, yeah, one of the generals or somebody. Yeah. Yeah, they had like pictures of people and stuff and go, is this guy anybody? You know, is this is this somebody? And they're like, Jesus, dude, okay, we gotta figure out what these guys about who these people are. You know, to kind of calm it down or whatever. But that's yeah, interesting. That stuff, that's awesome that I can't believe that uh, I mean I can believe it, but it's just neat that you saw that guy. And I hate to make him into a celebrity because he sucked, but I mean he was he is, uh, he's, very famous. Yeah. Modern day, you know, he's up there with what Stalin, Hitler, and those types. You know, I mean, he's so yeah, it's pretty surreal. Did you make eye contact with him? Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't move until he looked up at me. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he would, he knew he was safe in that facility, so he'd he'd walk around, he'd walk up, he'd ask his guards questions, whatever, he'd do his thing. I mean, he was safe for a little while. Yeah. It's crazy, dude. That's weird. Well, I mean, you get to thinking about it, and these, you know, people are people. I mean, he's just as real as, as we are here. But it, it, it seems like it's like watching football on TV for me. Uh, like, I'm a big Dallas Cowboys fan. So, uh, stepping on that field, you're like, this field's not near as big as it looks on TV. You know what I'm yeah. saying? You're yeah. there, this is just 100 yards. It's just a regular football field. Right. But on TV, it seems twice as big. Yeah. You know, it's weird. It's crazy. The stadium's giant. But I mean, the football field itself is just like, in any high school stadium, you know, you're like, wow, it's crazy. So I, yeah, can- I spent, I, I spent two years in Baghdad, two years of my life. So like, you know, you watch the, uh, the shock and awe videos that they took. Most of those videos come from a hotel downtown that all the media has stayed at since like desert storm. Right. And, uh, so every time those bombs hit, I can tell you what those buildings are. And like, I can, I have pictures of my own of them, like the bomb crater in them from that bomb because, I mean, I, like I said, I spent two years there. So, oh, like, I know all those places. And 
Yeah. That's weird, man. Well, uh, as far as the people go, and, and I'm not going to, I'm not digging for your opinion necessarily on, mm-hmm. and you can give it, of course. I'm not trying to cut that. I'm just saying, uh, what was your impression of the, of the, um, military presence there as far as what did the people think of it? I mean, did anybody ever, I'm sure you interacted with people there. So yeah, all the time. Um, so the first year I was there, it was very welcoming. They wanted us there cause we, you know, we pushed the regime out and all that. And then as we were leaving in April of Oh four from our first deployment, that's whenever everything was really starting to turn. So, um, the, uh, like the last week or two, I guess, I'd have to look the dates up to be for sure, but the last week or two of my first deployment was when those uh, Blackwater security contractors were um, were killed and dragged through the streets and everything in Fallujah, um, and then uh, and then the the whole Fallujah siege kicked off and almost got us stuck there for another three months, um, and then I went home like I said for six months, and then we turned around and came back, and that's literally like two weeks later the second Fallujah. Um, you know, I mean, Battle of Fallujah, I guess the second one kicked off in November of 04. So, and the, the civilian populace kind of, that's whenever, you know, their opinions kind of started to turn. And, and I guess you can see why, because a lot, you know, a lot of civilians did get killed. And, and that's, unfortunately, that's uh, whenever we go to war, like people need to keep that in mind. Like that's something that's going to happen. So, you know, you start saying like, oh yeah, we need to go into whatever country and, and just, you know, wipe them out. Like, okay, you say that, women are going to die, children are going to die, innocent men are going to die, American soldiers are going to die, their soldiers are going to die. Like, you know, that is what it is, but you need to understand like that's what's going to happen. And there, there was a lot of, you know, there was, it was just, cra- it was a crazy time. Um, so yeah, my second deployment to Iraq, it was, they were not nearly as welcoming, but that was right as everything was really getting crazy. That's whenever IEDs were really, really becoming prominent. Um, they started getting bigger and more advanced while I was there. Um, and the way I understand it is like a year or two later is whenever they, it got to be the worst. Luckily, I wasn't there for that. But yeah, so I got to see kind of the full turn. But most people there are just like people in America. They just want to be left alone. They just want to be able to live their life. They want to be able to go to work. They don't want their kids messed with. They don't want to be messed with, you know, just... They just want to do their thing. But that's what I worked with a guy uh, that was a, a Vietnam veteran. And that's what, of all the things, I, th- I may have talked about it on the podcast before, even. But uh, one of the things that, that he said was when he was over in Vietnam, that this lady, uh, he saw her in some town or something like that. And he was, I think he was, he wasn't there for anything official. He was there, I think, doing something on his own, like personal time or whatever. But this lady can tell, you know, he's obviously an American, so she comes up to him and she starts saying, why won't you leave our country? And he's like, we're trying to help your country. She's like, no, you, you're bringing things here. And I'm not trying to be, oh, let me just stop right here. I'm not trying to be anti-America or anything like that. I'm just relaying what he said. That's why I asked, asked the question was, she was saying, well, we don't want you to be here anymore. It's like you said, though, in the initial part of it, yeah, you're taking away this huge problem. Then it starts to be, well, there's war all over the place. And as long as you guys are here, it's going to be war. So I can see how that tide will Well, turn. people on both sides think that, you know, it will just take a short amount of time. And when it takes a ton more time than what they initially thought, then it starts feeling like it's being 
you know, drawn out. Well, like Scott was saying, at the end of the day, you got, you, you know, you have your kids, your wife, and you're trying to live your life on a normal life. I could imagine if war was, had broken out in America, you know, um, it would disrupt everything. I mean, right. you can't go to school, you can't do anything without all, you know, security checkpoints and, and all those things that are necessary to try to keep people from, you know, killing each other and all those kind of things like that. I could see trying to organize that would be a, be an issue. So, and that's what uh, kind of drove my interest on it. Now, whatever, uh, so you've been military police your entire career? Is that, is that yeah. what you've done? As, man, that's crazy, man. And I can see why in that, uh, in that line, why you would have been involved in so many things that are like would have been in the media and all that. Dude, that would, that would suck on your part to me because it's like, like you said, very high biz, very, uh, very much, you know, if the cameras are around, you guys are usually around and that kind of thing like that. So, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I've been on the, you know, involved or on the fringes of a lot of big things just by chance. Like, uh, our unit responded to, um, the, I believe it was the Jordanian embassy got bombed in Baghdad in oh, either late 03 or early 04 during my first deployment. And then the UN headquarters in Baghdad um, had a big suicide bombing. Um, it was a big deal at the time. Didn't get a whole lot of, you know, press now. Like, but if you, if you just Google it, it was such a huge deal um, that we, and we responded to it. We weren't there whenever it happened. Um, but our, our unit responded as a quick reaction force. And then, um, yeah, just wild stuff. Uh, On a thing like that, I mean, I'm sure you guys would, I, I, I'm assuming, that you would be part of setting up some sort of order, trying to get yeah. everything back in order whenever something like that happens. Man. Yeah, and and it's a, a lot of it turns into our um, what's the right word? I don't know, like our mentorship of like the Iraqi police or the Afghan police, getting them to do it. So we would have to respond, make sure it was being done properly, but trying to get them to actually, you know, do the work. Were they? Were they? Uh, what I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, did they seem like guys that wanted to take charge, or were I mean, were you guys? Was it easy to to get these guys up into shape, or no, no, not at all. Um, part of it probably partially our fault. I mean, we naturally try to do things. We try to set things up the way that we do them, and that doesn't work in their culture and the way that they're brought up. So we try to create a police force that mimics ours, especially in like Afghanistan, um, but doesn't always work like tribal law rules all you know um like in afghanistan one time there was a murder in the village that one of our police stations owned and we went talked to the dude that killed the guy the night before like we're literally standing outside his house the afghan police are talking to him and at this point the afghan police are in charge if they make a call we have to kind of go with it and uh, they turn around they're like okay we're done let's go i said no you got to arrest that guy like he murdered that kid last night he goes yeah but like three weeks ago, he killed like four of this guy, these guys' goats. I said, okay, yeah. you don't get to kill somebody for that. And they're like, yeah, you do. Like he's, he earned it. It's his problem. And I was yeah. like, so what happens now? And they're like, well, so his family's probably going to kill somebody from his family. And like, that's just, it's old school, man. So oh Especially where we were. Huh? Was the guy not arrested? No. I think eventually he had to go to court, like, so they would have these courts, these tribunals, but I don't even remember if anything ever happened to him. That would make it almost impossible 
See, that's the, that's the culture, that barrier. I would assume, I'm glad that you told that story because it kind of goes along with what I was wondering about, uh, how many times our Americanized sense of justice ran up against, because you're, you're trying to get these guys, I'm sure, up and where they can handle their own thing. So, yes. like you said, I'm sure you run into that thing of, well, that's not how we do it here. And yeah. So that's a perfect example of how difficult, I'm sure, your job was of trying to recognize, well, we uh, got to set up some form of justice, but then again, you're not there to, we're not there to occupy and turn it into America. We're trying to turn it into an organized Afghanistan or organized Iraq or whatever. So, yeah. dude, I can't, I can't imagine trying to navigate uh, their cultural things with, because we're so different. You know what I mean? I mean, our, and that, that we seem more organized, but there's a whole lot more seem like red tape and, and uh, bureaucracy or whatever to go through to get things done. But these guys are pretty cut and dry. I mean, it sounds like. <laughs> me, just, you know? Yeah. Well, and you think like the Hatfields and McCoys got like longstanding beef. Like we're talking thousands of years that different families have hated each other there. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just, just goes back to the beginning of time that, you know, somebody that lives here, somebody that lives here, you know, and they're only a few miles away, just hate each other. And well, the guy that killed his goats um, is probably, he killed his goats probably because he didn't like the family to begin with, right? His family, yeah. other families, and they've been feuding for oh, thousands of years. Yeah. So did, he, so did the guy in this instance, did he seek out the guy that killed his goats and killed him, or did he catch him? I don't know. I don't know if he, I can't even remember. Like, so I know that sounds terrible, but it's. Well, I mean, you've, you've had. Fairly common, not. It's not common for somebody to get killed over a goat there, but it's it's not that unusual either. So it was like, <laughs> all right, you know. <laughs> that is that's crazy, dude. So uh, whenever you run into a thing like that, you guys are letting them handle it. Um, but are you how tied were your hands as far as uh, did you have the ability to override, or I mean? Did it progress? Did Something, you... No. So that was a thing. So we had, we actually had a military attorney, an army attorney. Um, and she was amazing, but she would go on patrol with us. And so we were there mentoring the Afghan police. She was there mentoring their lawyers and judges and things that they had that was, they weren't tied in with the police, but like their compounds were essentially in the same place. And so I had her to kind of bounce things off and, and hey, ma'am, this is what's going on. Like, do we need to snatch this dude up or what? She said, no, it's their law. Like, it's for them to enforce. And so, no, I, I couldn't override it. Like, I couldn't take him to jail. Because all I'd have done is taken him to the jail of the people that were refusing to arrest him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Well, so, uh, so were, would you say then that maybe your responsibility, uh, by and large, was, like, tactically? I mean, would you teach oh, yeah. to go in and get this yes. kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We were trying to teach them how to actually patrol. Um, they don't, they, they wouldn't know how to read a map. So you're talking about dudes like, so the, the police captain there and he and I were actually very close by the time I left. And unfortunately he got killed a couple years ago. Um, his name was Dr. D-A-K-T-A-R. Um, he and I were actually very, very, very good friends by the end of it. Um, he was, a he was a Mujahideen, uh, fighting the Soviets back in the day. And then uh, as the Taliban came in, he fled to Pakistan for several years and then um, came back once, uh, once the Americans came back and helped establish the police, the Afghan National Police. But he didn't know how to read a map. Like, he didn't know. I showed him a map, and he was like, oh, 
okay, I hear you talking about maps, but I've never looked at one before. And then I would try to point things out on the map, not thinking about it, you know, like, hey, we're going to take a patrol here and, and do this. And he's like, he would move the map off the table and be like, which mountain are you going to? <laughs> you know he knew english uh no i had uh interpreters with me oh wow so i had i had two interpreters or actually they both live in the states now um but they're afghanis they were from right there in kunar um and and one of my interpreters um he's known doctor that police captain his entire life like his dad was friends with him like it was kind of wild but Wow. It's kind of, I think that's neat in itself that you can become friends with somebody that you can't really, I mean, you're communicating with them, but someone is in between. Yeah. Playing them yeah. We were, we were great friends. So Irfan, my interpreter, um, I haven't talked to him in several months. He moved out to, he, he, it took him like eight or nine years to be to get a visa to move to the States. Um, and he lives out in California, but uh, he reached out to me whenever a doctor was killed. And like, and I was sad, like he was a really, really good friend of mine, but didn't speak a word of English. Um, I didn't speak any Pashtun. Um, yeah, it was, it was wild, man. Did he have a pretty good sense of humor? Yeah. Yeah. You could joke them, but it's a different sense of humor. Like see, these people, they didn't have electricity. Like, so whenever you go to Baghdad, whenever I was there, it was like going back to the 1940s or fifties with the way that they did things and the way that, you know, kind of infrastructure was set up pretty much because of the wars. Um, but going to Afghanistan was like going back to the 15, 1600s. Like, like when the sun went down, they lit a fire inside of the big main room of their house that didn't have a roof on it. And that's how they stayed warm. And that's where they cooked their food on their, you know, they put their stove there. They didn't have electricity. Like it wasn't a thing. There's no power grid. There's no any sure. of that where we were. Yeah, I've read about it, man. Uh, very primitive people. And that's yeah. what you're saying about the tribal part of it. It's one thing that, that drives that is because they don't know anything else, man. I mean, mm -hmm. You tell them there's a government, they don't, oh, okay, yeah, whatever. I don't, I don't care what the government says. Like, the government's not right here dealing with this. I am. Yeah. And so they, they take care of it. Yeah. yeah. Kill four of my goats, and he's dead now. Well, I mean, yeah. you got to think about how savage. That's what uh, I think that uh, maybe our, definitely our government may have not been ready for whenever they say, well, we're going to Afghanistan and do this, this, and this, is, I mean, these guys are hardened people. You know what I mean? I mean, you got military guys who, are used to running water and uh, electricity, not to downplay military, but I mean, they're used to certain amenities and these other people have been living, you know, old school, you know, you got to kill something to eat, be able to eat and walking up and down mountains all their lives. Which I think, you know, in that instance makes it that much harder to go in, take out the top guy and then, and then leave. You can't do that because if you do, then the next top guy takes over and every, and nothing changes, you know, the next guy. So I think, you know, it's, it kind of comes, what I was going to say earlier is, you know, it's a big inconvenience for the people that are there already. And then that after a while, they get so sick of seeing, you know, the American people and the American military, you know, I mean, you, if you, not to really, not an, a really good analogy, but here we are in McAllister and everybody wants new roads, right? Because our roads are terrible. But when they go to put a new road in, you'll have everybody and their dog bitch and complain and moan. Losing their mind, yep. You know, yeah, the so for the yeah. inconvenience. Sure. And, it, and it drags on and drags on. So I can only imagine how, you know, both sides, you know, the American people, they're like, man, we've been to war forever. And we got to think about this, though, and be like, 
it, but what you're saying only imagine if that road is keeping them from getting to church you know what i'm saying because everything's theological over there man everything's religion based right and, and uh like like scott was saying sure. thousands of years and this is all for me reading about it, dude i don't, I don't have <laughs> you know i'm just trying to go along with what you're saying uh about the the deep-seated the the mentality of, of those people man i can't imagine not only that but the disconnect you have because you have to have an interpreter did you you, you have the patience of i can't even imagine trying to do the things you were doing with that with just that obstacle in your way of you can't just speak to somebody you got to tell this dude this dude's got to tell him you got to listen to the answer then tell you what the answer was you guys are looking at each other what's cool though is just like you were saying people are people you right know, even though these people are they live over there live like that we all kind of want the same thing and i didn't realize that man growing up in america we get taught that america is the greatest country in the world still believe that but i'm just saying i whenever i was young tended to believe that we were smarter than everybody too yeah our iqs higher than than somebody that might live in afghanistan that's not necessarily true you know yeah, I mean? you're better educated doesn't mean that you're smarter right yeah yep. definitely yeah so and that's that's a neat thing that kind of what you to illustrate what you were saying is uh that you can make good friends with these people that even though culturally you're different you know language and everything else it's pretty awesome experience i think uh that i, I wish more people even myself included could be a part of so you could realize that you know people are people even though we speak different mm -hmm. languages that kind of thing like that it's crazy and i had to get to be an old man before i realized that you know? so your friend doctor he was killed a couple of years ago how did he how did he die uh, an ied a roadside bomb um from what it sounds like like he was assassinated like they set it up outside the police station specifically for him and got him they tried to kill him while i was there in the same way they just missed mistimed the bomb tore a truck up but kind of rung his bell but they got him i guess wow yeah was he an older guy was he yeah i, I want to say he was probably in his mid 50s early 60s which is pretty old over there i mean you know they, they don't tend to live into their 80s and 90s as a as a real common thing well, no, because like if you mess up just a little bit, uh, you know, accidentally. Oh yeah, I mean, kill somebody's goat. Maybe yeah. Kill my well, and Kunar is, I mean, the hotbed of of Afghanistan. I mean, there's a million, a, a million. I mean, there's a lot. Most of the movies about Afghanistan, a lot of them center around Kunar province. Um, the, uh, you know, Bin Laden was known to be in Kunar province. Um, so it's all right. I mean, it was just a dangerous, dangerous, crazy place. It was, it was the Wild West. So you were involved, or, or correct me if I'm wrong, and I'll cut this out if I'm wrong, but weren't you involved in a high-profile um, search for someone over? Yeah. Yeah, there was a British aid worker, and I wish I could, I'll Google it. Here, I'll just Google it um, while I'm talking, but a uh, British aid worker, she got kidnapped in Kunar. Yeah, so her name was uh, uh, Linda Norgrove. She was a British aid worker, and she got kidnapped along with, like, her escorts in Kunar. And um, it was like, what does this say? I want to say it was like 10 or 11 days. Everything just stopped while we were there, while we searched for. And then um, we wound up, uh, and I say we, I wasn't one of the ones that did, but they, her location got pinpointed one night. And, you know, they sent in, you know, SEAL Team 6 dudes. And she unfortunately got killed during the rescue. Um, but, yeah, it was wild. Like, and, and that's what happens in Kunar. Like, you're rolling through there and all of us were saying it like, I 
cannot believe a, an aid worker was rolling through here with no, no, but the people with her weren't even armed, you know, that were supposed to protect her. And I just could not imagine. And she had all the good intent in the world. Like I've read quite a bit about her mm -hmm. um, just over the years. And she was just out there just pure hearted trying to help people and, and thought that that would keep her safe and ran into the wrong people, you know, that snatched yeah. her up. And it's happened a lot over there. Like I, as, if you Google that, you'll find 10 other stories that you've never heard before of aid workers and things getting kidnapped. And sometimes they get rescued or get released. And um, other times, you know, unfortunately, like in her case. How was she killed? Um, so it was it was friendly fire. Um, it was one of the the story as I remember it was um, they were taking fire from a building um, and a grenade was thrown I think into an adjacent room um, and they didn't think that she was in there like the intel had her in the wrong spot kind of thing um, and I think it was thrown into an adjacent room but then still some of the shrapnel got her and she wound up dying in route to the hospital from what I understand, but that's a little bit of, you know, me trying to remember 10 years ago now. Right. So, but yeah, it was a, it was a friendly fire type of thing, but you know, that speaks a lot to our, uh, you know, the integrity of our force was, um, I remember being told like the guy that actually threw the grenade is the one, like once he figured out what happened, he's the one said, Hey, she wasn't killed by one of them. It was, you know, I threw this, this is what happened. And, and that's what got her. So. And he could have very easily just let the narrative go of, you know, oh, yeah, it was a suicide vest or something like that. But Right. Or he could blame it on, you know, them, of course. You know, well, yeah. I mean, that goes along with, uh, I mean, like people always say about the, the rules of engagement and all that stuff like that. I mean, you're wanting perfect behavior out of imperfect people. I mean, these people are, your life, you, could you imagine sitting there, you're shooting people, they're shooting at you, and you're supposed to make, you're supposed to say, she could be in there. You know, whenever there's five guns shooting at you out of a window, you're like, mm -hmm. hey, one grenade's going to take care of these people, you know, and you do that. And then, I mean, that's that's just an unfortunate thing. I, well, like you said, they had bad intel anyways, and they thought that she was in a different part of the building or... Yeah, something like that. Like I said, I was... Look, one thing I'm not is a SEAL Team 6 operator, so I was definitely not on the target that night. Um but uh, yeah, the way that I understand it is, you know, they thought she was in this one specific spot. She wasn't. And, and things got hot right away, you know, as soon as they got there, of course. And unfortunately, those, you know, those things happen. It's things dangerous and unfortunate. But. How many surgical things, though, get done by the military? Oh, dude, every single night over there, especially whenever I was there, they were just, you know, that one, you know, terrible incident gets highlighted but they don't talk about that probably that exact team you know whoever they were probably did 150 in a row that went perfect before that one and sure yeah. you know. that's crazy dude I, I couldn't imagine uh well you know i mean that speaks to the that ladies you know want to be out there doing that kind of thing i guess just with no protection had the wrong mm -hmm. idea about the kind of place she's going to i guess Talk about a pure ideal, man, willing to go somewhere like that with no no protection whatsoever, just to help people. That's all she cared about, you know. It's, it's unbelievable. I know I don't have that in me. Me either. No. Hey, there's no way, dude. There's no, I mean, I wouldn't even want to go, like, even on my own, if somebody goes, hey, man, we'll send, we'll give you a submachine gun. You can go in there with that. I'm like, no, nah, <laughs> not, not by myself, I'm not, you know what I mean? 
you know, give me five guys that I trust, you right. know, yeah. and we might go look at it from a ways away or something like that. You know, I go there. God, no. So did you, while you were there and you were dealing with, you know, teaching and training the other guys, did you ever run into a situation where maybe you thought, and I'm sure you had it in the back of your mind the whole time, that there was somebody amongst, you know, the guys that were, uh, that you were around that might be against you? Yeah, um, we, we were always on guard for it. It wasn't the epidemic that it has been in the last few years while I was there. You know, I mean, in the last, I can't remember what year it was, but like, I mean, some ungodly percentage of our killed and wounded in action was from, you know, friendly fire from uh, our partner force in Afghanistan. So we, we were always on guard for it. Um, and we would kind of set ourselves up in a way to watch for it. We were always, uh, we never let them, we were never grouped up together and kind of surrounded by them just in case. We were always interspersed throughout. So if you're doing a patrol and you're walking, you know, like you just imagine like the file that you'll see in movies where everyone's kind of one behind the other. Whenever you're going through some, you know, crowded areas that force you into that formation, it wouldn't be like a line of Americans and then a line of Afghan army or Afghan police. It would be like an American for, you know, Afghans and then an American. And we would kind of be interspersed so that we could have our eyes on everyone and kind of watch each other's back. So we never had an incident. One time we thought we did. Um, we were doing a night patrol and some farmers came out of a field and it was in the middle of the summer. So it was, it was not uncommon for um, them to do some work at night because it's so hot during the day. Um, but people bearing bombs look a lot like farmers. So um, it was a little nerve wracking. We saw them out there working, drew down on them. Our interpreters called them forward. We let the Afghan National Police ha uh, handle it. Everything they had in their hands was actual farming equipment, you know. Um, so everything was good. Well, as we're walking away, three shots ring out real fast. Just bah, bah, bah. Thought, well, this is it, you know. One of these dudes turned around and fired on us and turned around and the Afghan policeman that had been talking to him had a negligent discharge. So he had his finger on the trigger, squeezed off three rounds, almost shot these two dudes, these two farmers. Oh my gosh. And I'm like, oh God. So we, we sort out that everything's okay and run over there. And um, one of the Afghan lieutenants that was on the patrol with us, it's like, hey, we'll take care of this. Da -da -da -da. So, yeah, you know, this is yours to deal with, but um you know he needs to be disciplined whatever and i meant like officially disciplined like you know put it on paper like we've been showing you how to do it you know um report it to hire yada 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 so we were at the station every day well like three days later you know and i reported it in my report and you know moved on not that big a deal because no one got hurt like three days later we're at the station i'm sitting there with uh with doctor i'm like oh yeah by the way what happened with the guy that uh fired off the rounds and he said, oh, his punishment's almost up. And I said, well, what's his punishment? He said, come here. And he opened a closet. And this poor dude had been sitting in this closet, locked in it, in the dark for like three days. I don't know how much food or water they were giving him. Like, they basically put him in solitary confinement in the police station. And I was like, all right, he probably learned <laughs> when you start When you started this story, I honestly thought it was going to be a lot worse than that. So that was pretty pretty. Uh, easy punishment compared to what I was thinking. Well, think about the harshness of that compared to what – would have happened in the military, you know. I mean, you probably get rode up, and you know, oh, yeah. maybe on your on your little jacket that you had that or whatever. But well, he should restart his, you know, firearm training. You know, his weapons training. Yeah. Is that? Oh man. Or did he just go right back to where he was at before? Did they think oh, well, was, or, or however long he was in solitary? We, they thought that was we mentored them to, you know, 
redo firearms training with them. And then, of course, we always took them to the range. We had our own weapons range. We'd right. take them to and train them. And so, you know, we tried to influence that to be a little bit more, uh, you know, a little bit of a softer story, I guess you could say, to try to help them out. But I mean, I think, you know, in the U.S. as a cop or whatever, if that, if that were to happen, you're probably going to get, you know, suspended for a little while. And then, you know, you're going to have to do some weapons training. This guy got suspended, but he got put. He got off. suspended. Suspended. Yeah. It's hilarious, dude. You're like, so what happened to the guy? He's in the closet behind you. Oh, he's right here. Yeah, yeah. That was it, and that's how they did business, man. It was. And so, just, when, when the guy gets out, like, did he say anything? Like, when you when he opened the door, did he say? Hey. Well, he, he was doing. I mean, he was in a closet with no light, so it was like that. You know, you see, like, uh, I don't know, on Shawshank Redemption or something, where some dude, you know, Andy was in solitary for, and they opened the door, and his eyes can barely open, and <laughs> he's looking. I'm like, oh my god! So I had him shut the door. I was like, listen, we got to do something a little bit different. Let's. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, well, this is this is good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I took care of it. All right, man. But yeah. The only thing he's got left is get his index finger cut off, and then he can go back to work. Yeah, and then then he'll, he'll move on. He'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> so this guy, and I, I don't want to harp on a uh, on a funny story, I guess, or but this guy, I, I just not, I need to know more details. Did this guy? Yeah. He had clothes on, or was he just in his? Underwear? Yeah, he was like in his, uh, like he had on like his white under T-shirt or whatever, and his Afghan police pants. But were you there when he was released? Like when he was? No. And no, so but like, so like, so because what you don't want to do, you don't, you don't want me, the American, to come in and cut their power out from under them, right? Of their supervisors, right? So his supervisor imposes punishment. So I had to kind of convince him, like, hey, maybe, maybe that's enough time. So maybe I'll need to let him go. So like the next, I don't know how long they were going to leave him in there, but like, so the next day I came and I'm like, Hey, so what happened with, you know, Oh, what's his name back here? Oh, he's all, he's done. We're going to do that. Made him show me the closet. So I could just kind of, okay, good. You know, <laughs> so you never know. Maybe they moved into a different closet. So that the stupid American wouldn't, wouldn't be suspicious. I don't know. So you never saw the guy again? I did. Yeah. But he would kind of, he would shy away from us because, I mean, whenever it happened, I jumped all over him. I went, I went crazy whenever he, oh, yeah. whenever the rounds went off, went off on him. And I had a couple dudes that wanted to get, cause you know, we all crapped our pants just, yeah, you know, yeah. and so, you know, we went off from it. So he would kind of avoid us after that, keep his eyes down or whatever. But that's what yeah. I was thinking. I was thinking probably whenever you, you know, if you were being straight up about it, when you saw him in the closet, you're probably like, it's a bit much, but eh, I'm all right with it. It'll work, yeah. Right. Yeah, I wasn't too disappointed. <laughs> yeah, he's not getting, you know. So I'm guessing it was an AK, right? That he, yeah, yeah, AK-47, yeah. Well, I, I, I'm just wondering, you know, this would make for, it could be, it, it, this would make for a very funny scene of a movie where this mm -hmm. guy gets out of his closet, his eyes are still, and they hand him his AK back, right, <laughs> and tell him, all right, you know, here you go. And he just walks out the door with his AK. I mean, over there, work. do they, I'm guessing, do they have patrol units? Do they take their patrol units home at this time? No. So um, they had police vehicles, but they didn't have a lot. I'm trying to remember how many police were assigned to this station. Um, but this is right in the middle of the village. It was called Sarkani, the Sarkani district, which is a, a decently sized village um, outside of Asadabad, which is the capital of Kunar. So little bitty village, little bitty police station. Let's say there was a hundred AMP there. I think they had five vehicles, but 
they didn't, they don't patrol like a, they don't have like a beat, you know, they go on, they go on like combat patrols and, um, and like, you know, we load up on our big armored trucks, so they've got pickup trucks and they throw a bunch of dudes in the back and drive out to wherever they're going. And yeah. No, oh, okay. Because the bad guys that they're really going after is not a meth head. They're going after like, you know, Taliban or, or AQ guys or whatever. You know, that's their. What do they do? They just walk, are they walking home and they get back to the base? They, they're yeah. Like, um, so not all of them are from that area. So they go to one big academy. And I want to say it was in Kabul. Um, I didn't know as much about the, the hierarchy of the Afghan National Police as I did the Iraqi police. But they would get a sign there and they would try to assign as many of the junior policemen outside of the area that they were from as possible so that they didn't have those like family ties that went back so far um, in the area. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they would, they would come in, they would stay there for their five or six days or however long they were scheduled to work and then go home for two or three. And then, you know, sometimes they never came back. You never knew why. Sometimes they got reassigned. You didn't know why. Um, sometimes they just never showed up back to work. You didn't know if they got killed or their, you know, their Taliban cousin or, or whatever, got a hold of them and, and either, you know, talked them onto their side or told them that he was going to kill their family if they came back to work. Cause that's, that was reality for them. So. So you guys were basically then uh, to say that, that they were, uh, the police is almost, it's more along your line, your type of, of uh, work then, right? More combat oriented. Uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. They're not like they had cases or anything like that. This is more of a trying to keep the peace, like on a yes, a big scale or whatever. Yeah, know. absolutely. And we tried to teach them some basic policing tactics, um, so that they would have more of a presence with like the common, you know, citizen that wasn't involved in any of that stuff, so that they could, you know, provide a presence there. And we were getting there, but it takes a long time to kind of change that mentality. And so we went from whenever I got there in. When did I get there? I got there in April of 2010. They were, you couldn't, they weren't even wearing their uniforms and they were just sitting around the station all day and they were collecting a paycheck, not really doing anything. So whenever we left, we would show up to the station sometimes and if we weren't there on time, they were already out on patrol on their own. So they were at least going out by that point. And that was a huge victory for us. Right. You know, they weren't, they weren't taking sworn statements or getting fingerprints off anything, but they were they were out there at least policing their area and you could go find them. You know, if, the, if we showed up and they weren't there and you know, doctor or somebody told us like, yeah, they're patrolling this area. We'd go out there and they'd be patrolling. They'd be talking to people and, and doing their thing. So. Was it common to hear a lot of gunshots around? The oh yeah. Yeah. So is that the job basically to go to the, that area where the gunshots are or is it? Just Not necessarily. No. Um, just because it was so common. So every Afghan home was allowed to have an AK in it for self-defense and um and really if you spent your time trying to go to every time everywhere you heard gunshots you'd never get anywhere you'd just yes. be running in circles so um you know like i said it was just it was an extremely hot area while we were there we were we were in the thick of it for that whole year so yeah it sounds almost stereotypical i mean the ak's i'm sure were very uh popular did you see i, I don't know if you need to answer this kind of question but did you see other kind of small arms over there that those guys had? I mean, would they have just like random? Uh, they had a lot of old Russian stuff from whenever the Soviets were there. You know, let me make sure this didn't work. Um, yeah, they would. Uh, 
I mean, like sometimes they'd have these old pistols that looked like they were from the twenties and thirties. You couldn't even identify them that they carried around for protection. Um, there's, you know, like I said, a lot of old Soviet weapons. So the Soviets went in there and, and they tried to just duke it out and occupy this place and, and got their ass handed to them. So there's still a lot of, a lot of that going on. And then you'd see some old American stuff from when uh, the CIA was like arming the Mujahideen in their fight with the Soviets back then, you know, that had been passed around and sold and whatever else to, you know, to fall in the wrong hands, but nothing, nothing too crazy. I mean, they had uh, the typical Soviet stuff. So recoilless rifles, which is actually like a rocket. Um, and then uh, the, you know, the giant, Machine, God, I can't, I'm sitting here blanking on the podcast and any of my army buddies are going to laugh at me because I can't tell you what the big ass machine gun they used to shoot at us with all the time was, but <laughs> it's because I'm blanking on it. I'll get a million text messages after this, but, uh, but yeah, just, yeah, mainly AKs for the most part and RPGs, RPGs all over the place. But they're not allowed, right? What's that? They're not allowed, the RPGs. Shit. I mean, <laughs> did, did, did you guys confiscate that kind of, I mean, if you found something, you know, like, a, Oh, you mean like if a civilian had it? Yeah. We would right. take it from them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you didn't, you, you didn't normally find them in a house and, um, right. If but you if did, you would just confiscate did, it. Yeah. You would, you would usually take it. Um, and, and it would actually usually become the, the police's at that point, um, for them to use. But cause usually if they had it, there was usually a tie to somebody else Isn't to, you know, just think about they confiscate it and they're like, no, we're going to use this now. Well, I would think, I mean, by and large, I would think if you if you found something like that in somebody's house, I would be thinking, well, these guys, this is something they're keeping this for somebody. You know, this is like uh, like an arms stash or something like that. that yeah, we found a few. We found a few, you know, houses that were uh, that they were stashing things for for the bad guys. But did you guys arrest the- kind of people? I mean, did you? I mean, was there a discipline for that kind of stuff? Or? Yeah, so if it, if it was something like that where it was like they were assisting, you know, Taliban or AQ or whoever it was that was, you know, the, the acronym of the day, um, then, yeah, you would you would take them into custody and then they would get handed over and go to Bagram to the prison and then be dealt with from there. But not but, necessarily if they had an RPG, would they get? No. Like if it was one RPG – um and they told you like yeah well there was a a fight here you know two years ago and you know you guys killed these dudes and and we found this on the ground after you left and we kept it for our house like that's probably a legit story we're just going to take it from them you know what i mean shoot it off in your house and kill everybody yeah (laughs) (laughs) i just from some of the videos i've seen of those guys you know it's just like uh, they don't need that. No training you know? whatsoever. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, well, in American society, you know, you can say what you want to about the direction we're headed in, but I mean, by and large, we're kind of a gun culture in America, so a lot of people know when you pick something up, don't, you know, well, I don't know I say that. Yeah. People in my area, you know, <laughs> don't be, you know, pointed at people and don't pull the trigger on it or whatever, but those videos I see, those guys, and I don't know if it's, you know, if it's common or not, but they seem really un- uh, unfamiliar with some of the things that they're using and doing over there. So. Well, so an RPG, just like that, so our, we have a, it's called an AT-4, it's an anti-tank rocket, and it shoots out of a tube, very similar. The The real dangerous part of that to your buddies is what's called the back blast. Mm-hmm. So the back of that thing, you always see it, I mean, it will, I mean, just decimate 
everybody behind you. Well, if you don't know that, and I've seen it happen, I've seen bad guys roll up, try to shoot one at a checkpoint, and they just hold the RPG like the tip of it out the window and smoke everybody inside the truck because the back blast. And there's videos of that all over the internet. Like it's, they kill everybody inside because that explosion is just as bad as the other one. Right. You know, like we have a procedure before we fire ours of, it's called, you know, back blast area clear and you yell it and you look and make sure that the back blast area is clear. So if you don't, you know, Ben's back there smoking a cigarette and gets, you know, <laughs> right. killed at the OP because he was standing behind you while you shot off the rocket, you know. <laughs> and see, and, but in, on, in some ways, you would, I maybe wouldn't want to educate those guys because you're, they're helping the cause by, yeah, <laughs> and uh, eliminate the threat. Yeah. Themselves. <laughs> yeah, you're like, well, we're not going to do any RPG training. We uh, we need these guys to keep doing what they're doing with it. So, yeah, that is insane. Well, um, now, so there's, I hate to group it all together because I have read a lot about it, and I know that there's a difference or whatever. But so your experiences then in Afghanistan versus Iraq, totally different. Yeah, hundred percent different. Yeah. Okay, because Iraq. Yeah a lot more developed country mm -hmm. than, than Afghanistan, correct? Yeah, so Iraq was, you know, I mean, just as advanced as, as any other Western, or as a Western nation um, before all the sanctions and things from the Gulf War happened. That kind of decimated their economy, but they had, you know, all the vehicles and, you know, the infrastructure and things that you could want, just not all of it worked. Um, but where I was in Afghanistan was, I mean, the complete opposite of that. They, like I said, there's no power grid whatsoever. Um, a few of them might have had a gas generator, like a few, but it wasn't used to power a TV. You know what I mean? Um, and they still, you know, they wear uh, that traditional, um, I guess you would call it Arab clothing. Um, they walk around and stand, they climb those mountains, you know, wearing boots and, and they'll dust you running up a mountain in a pair of leather sandals that, you know, or a half an inch thick on their best day on the bottom. And because that's just how they live. That's what they do day to day. You know, most of them, a lot of them couldn't read because they were never taught because it wasn't, it's not important. You know, they needed to know how to farm and or how to fight or how to do, you know, whatever it was. Um, so yeah, completely different experience. Now from what I'm told, so I've been all over Iraq. I've been to all the major cities um, just, you know, so I know that whole country pretty well, but Afghanistan, I was really centered in Kunar. Um, from what I'm told, Kabul is very westernized um, with technology and infrastructure and things, but I don't have any experience of it. I never saw it, so. But Kunar's like kind of the worst of the worst over there, isn't it? Kunar is, yeah, I mean, Kunar's on the pack border and it's it's about as bad. There's there's a couple other places that are that are on the same level as Kunar, but it's definitely, up there and, the, and those other areas that you hear about mostly are, are like Kunar's neighbors. So they're all, just, you know, they're just separated by an imaginary border like Oklahoma and Texas or whatever, so. Yeah. Well, and uh, the topography, I, I would assume, you know, that I've always heard geographically, I, of course, it's a lot different than Vietnam, but I mean, just the fact that they, they've mastered the elements there as far oh, as yeah. and those kind of things like that. So you're at a huge disadvantage yeah. because of that. And I think that's why I read a thing about the reason why they beat the Russians so handily, even though Russians had all of this technology and all these war vehicles and all these things they could take in there, they beat them so easily because 
dude, they are on foot. They're used to being on foot. They're used to mm-hmm. to above tree line. You know, I mean, I didn't realize that until until the war stuff started happening. Um, Afghanistan, you know, I always think of the desert. You know what I mean? I'm like, yeah. I'm thinking of, of Iraq and Afghanistan. All these countries is like this big, flat, sandy desert. And instead, you know, you see these pictures, and it looks like uh, like Utah or uh, northern Colorado or, yep. you know what I mean? It's, it's real steep mountains, a lot of snow-capped, yada, 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 evergreens. And then above tree line, it's barren. And, and these people live in that crap. You know, and you're you rolling there with a tank. Well, good luck, you know, because – Yeah, you're not – it ain't gonna work. Yeah, yeah that, I, down to you, you think about it on that level, that would be tough, man. I mean, I'm surprised we have, have had as much success as we have. Tenacity would be the only thing you could say. You know, just just keep on pushing at them would be the only way you could get anything done. Over, I'm sure. So, but and on your end of it, though, dealing with the people, um, did the the guys that you were training uh, from the what would I say, like the uh, Afghanis or whatever. Mm-hmm. You were training police force there too, right? Yep. Right. Uh, were, the, were those guys, um, was there any respect from people that, like the general population, did they respect the authority of these guys or did they get, because they run around with you guys, was, was there something that was like, all oh, those guys are, you know, they run around with the Americans. We don't care what they do. No, they, they did, but um, but they weren't. So, you know, you know, if you got some big situation happening in your neighborhood, whenever the police show up, you know, for the most part, Americans know, okay, all right, the police just showed up. We got to listen to what they're going to say. And, you know, it's, it, this is now their show. When the police show up there, it's not like everyone just stops what's going on. When the elders show up, everyone shuts up to include the police and listen to what the elders have to say. So these, you know, these old men come walking in and, all right, so what happened? This, this, and this. Okay, and the police want to do this, and they kind of decide if the police are going to do that or not. Um, and wow. yeah, that's, that's seeing that there. There you go. There's another layer of making your job more difficult to me. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> and for the most part, the elders didn't really want to be friends with us, not because they disliked us or anything, but um, you know, they're worried about just their people and just you know so us getting in good with them wasn't really a thing that we could do. We met with them and we knew them, you know, and we would invite them. We would try to get the Afghan police to invite them to the station for meetings and things where we could discuss, you know, different issues going on or, or whatever. And they would show up and do those things, but they were, they were not going to partner with us by any means. And, that which I did, I guess. Oh man, you can imagine, I can just imagine things you could have gotten done if they would have been mm-hmm. receptive. You know, I mean, but you're talking about, a. I mean, if you could do that, that's a, that would be a huge culture shift in that country, you know, yeah. you know, maybe over time, something like that could be done if people are still working at it. But I mean, on your end of it, you're specific to me. I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm just kind of seeing the praises of guys like yourself uh, to go in there and you got to try, you know, I mean, you got to do what you can with those dudes. So especially having your hands tied on that level where it's, you, you go, well, we're, in this instance, we're not the top authority, you know. We're gonna, we can only do yep. this so. that. See, that's 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 crazy, man. I mean, it's so far from what we know here. It's hard to imagine, you know. I mean, yeah. I just, it's almost like there's no law. I mean, it, when there's tribal law, then it's like up to the the guy to decide. This is 
What kind of food were you eating at this time? Um, so we had, uh, you know, our, our army cooks and contractors there. They, they, so we had a, a chow hall on our little base and pretty good food. But yeah, so we would do missions. We'd go out, um, you know, seemed like they were always scheduled to just go 72 hours, but they always went, you know, like a week or 10 days, of course, um, where all you're eating was MREs. And then I ate a lot of Afghan food. I loved Afghan food um, out on the economy, but I got sick a couple times. You know, they don't have the, uh, the standards of, you know, preparation that we do always. But What was your favorite um, Afghan food? Um, so, so, you know, they have Ramadan where they do their fasting and, and all that. They're big. Uh, you know holy holiday and uh at the end of it is this celebration called eid and i'm hoping that i'm remembering all this accurately like i said it's been almost 10 years now um but it's a three-day celebration at the end of ramadan where they uh you know they instead of fasting they feast and they celebrate and and all this so um during ramadan it was really tough on those afghan police because even though you know they basically have an exemption from fasting because they're law enforcement and or military or whatever. Um, it's kind of written in their bill that they can, they can eat because it's necessary. A lot of them wouldn't. And so we would have to, we would do a lot of patrols at night because they could eat um, when the sun wasn't up. But for the most part, they were kind of diminished for about 40 days. So, excuse me. I had uh, my wife send me a bunch of cash for Eid. And we went to their market and I bought a bunch of food and I bought a goat. And um, well, I mean, so I gave the police money and they went and got it, but bought a goat, a bunch of food, a bunch of drinks, the whole thing, and brought it back to the, uh, to the Afghan police station. And they sacrificed the goat and cooked it up like same day, fresh goat, did the whole thing. I say sacrifice. I mean, it's, they have like, they, they uh, I can't remember what it's called whenever the, the way that they prepare, oh, halal. So the way that they prepare things is it's like a halal mill I mean, there's no pork in it and they prepare it properly and pray over it properly and all those things. And they prepared all of it and I paid for it. And I'm, you know, in the States for as many people as I fed, it probably would have cost me 1500 bucks. I think I spent $120 or something. Wow. On this, but yeah, but so anyway, same day goat with some fresh, fresh vegetables out of their, uh, out of their garden and then bread that one of their wives made in the house was, that was where it was at, man. That was that was really good. So it, it, then uh, I'm sure goat being one of their main staples uh, as far as what they eat. What what kind of vegetables did they have over there? Um, they had some like I mean just pretty common vegetables, tomatoes, um, like cucumber, zucchini, um, and then like a. I, we called it lettuce, but it was more like a spinach, but it wasn't quite spinach kind of thing, just like a leaf dill. And then just a little bit of spices, but, you know, it was all fresh. Like I said, you know, like we, we always joked around, it was the same day goat, but. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so um, did, did they, any of your, uh, the Iraqi or Afghan people that you're around, did they, did they like American food that you guys were? They're real cautious of it because they know that, like, we eat pork and things like that they're very cautious of what they will eat that we bring them so like we always gave kids candy and stuff um but like uh, so doctor um a couple of times we brought him onto our base and tried to get him to eat with us and we would even take him and show him like hey there's no pork back here you know we told him you're coming um one of the contractors that cooked in our chow hall 
uh, was Muslim and he would talk to him like, yes, I made you know, and tell him that he made it properly or whatever. And doctor just wasn't going to risk it, but he loved ice cream. So we would just get ice cream and sit down and eat and, and meet because so they were just super cautious of it. But yeah, they love candy, like the kids and stuff. That was really the only way to get kids to come and talk to you. you just load yourself down with candy and they just swarm you and hand it out. And, you said you had to have the the uh, the uh, Afghanistan guys go buy the stuff for you. Would they, mm-hmm. they would sell it to you individually, or they just- would have? But like, I would have been at risk walking into the market and then walking out with a bunch of groceries. Like, I can't really defend myself, so we would send them to go do it for us. Yeah, I did two years in Iraq, and then there was a little bit of a gap after I was a drill sergeant. I went to Afghanistan. Um, pretty much immediately after, so I came back from Afghanistan, and uh, I was at Fort Hood. And so if you remember um, the Fort Hood shooter in 2009, yeah. Al-Hassan, so his, all of his pretrial stuff was going on, and I, was, I got moved to what was called the SRT, our special reaction team, which is like the SWAT team. Um, and we got put in charge of basically doing all of his security for all of his pretrial stuff. Um, so I wound up spending like nine months transporting this dude from the Bell County Jail in Belton, Texas, right outside of Temple, back to Fort Hood for all of his pretrial meetings or meetings with his attorneys or whatever he needed, and back while also like training and certifying this new team. Um, And then I would have been there through all of his trial, except I got put on recruiting orders and wound up in McAllister. So I was in McAllister, when did I get there? July of 12, so just two, no, just barely a year after getting out of Afghanistan. Great. Any, any stories with that guy? When you with Hassan? Um, not a ton. He was, we didn't really deal with him much. He had a real uh, kind of big time attorney at the time and that didn't really like us being around, but we didn't care. So we didn't have a whole lot to do with him um, except, I mean, just physically moving him. So we would alternate. We had to do training with the Secret Service on moving him because we had to alternate between flying him via helicopter, which was the safest, which we liked the best, but they weren't always available. So we would have to literally drive him from the, like I said, the Bell County Jail is about a 25 minute drive. And and you wind up driving him through neighborhoods and things. Well, you're also driving him right back to the place where he committed the crime. So there's a lot of people that hate him. So, so you know, the wrong person gets wind of it. So we had to protect him. So we did some secret service training. So we would move him but he was in a van, he was locked down um, in a wheelchair. Um, And then whenever we flew him, we would just secure him to a gurney. um, And then he would be like on a stretcher. And uh, and then we would secure him uh, down in the helicopter. So that was really the most interaction we'd have with him. He wouldn't really say much, we wouldn't say much to him. The civilians that were on my team um, actually responded to the shooting. And, you know, we're searching for him during the shooting and things, so. Wow. Had he said anything, it could have turned bad for him. I wasn't there yet. I was still a drill sergeant whenever the shooting happened, but I was like 60 days away from moving there whenever it happened. Wow. I want to talk a little bit about you being a drill sergeant. Okay. I asked you a couple of questions, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago about it. Yeah. About the, I guess, practicing and, and uh, you know, becoming one and, and how it all goes down and, you being like you being a nice guy that you are, you know, it's kind of hard. <laughs> to, you know, it's kind of hard to imagine that you know uh, you've done what you've done, you know, overseas and been through it mm-hmm. all. And I, we know some guys that's done, you know, a lot of stuff and 
and they're not so nice as you are. And so, <laughs> but it, you well, being a drill sergeant, I don't know any drill sergeants. I've never met. I don't even think I've ever yeah. even met a drill sergeant. So you being a drill sergeant and as nice as you are, how uh, how did it all go down? So my wife thinks that I, that I'm like I don't know. I guess bipolar would be the word. I don't know because um, I can. I can flip a switch, especially in work mode if I have to. Um, but being a drill sergeant, like all the screaming and yelling and things that you see, it's a very, very minuscule part of what a drill sergeant does. Um, drill sergeants and drill instructors and, you know, whatever the other branches call them, um, are like expert teachers. You know, we're taking somebody that knows absolute, most of the time knows absolutely nothing about the military, how we do things, and in a very short window, you know, turning them into soldiers. And whenever I was a drill sergeant, a lot of these kids within, you know, two, three, four months were in Iraq or in Afghanistan. Um, so, so it was, it's serious business and that's the way you have to do it. And the stress that we induce. So yeah, at first, you know, you can, you can Google all the videos or YouTube them or whatever, of, you know, people just screaming and, and there's pictures. I'll send you a picture. I'll find it. Um, where I'm just going to town on somebody screaming and, and going berserk and and all that and it, it's all about inducing stress and at the beginning you're trying to induce so much stress that they can't function and you and you start stripping away their individuality at that point well then as you go along you induce the stress again but you start showing them how to deal with it to where it doesn't matter because what you want to be able to do is cut out all the noise and still take care of what, of what they have to do and the stress isn't personal so it's not um so if, if Ben's one of the, you know, the new soldiers getting off the bus, I don't, I'm not mad at Ben for joining the army. It's the stress is me getting Ben to achieve the standard of the task, whatever that task is. And so, and that's where you have to, it doesn't feel that way. Like whenever I was brand new and I was just getting, you know, the hell smoked out of me, it feels very personal, <laughs> yeah, but, but it's not, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's getting, you have to change the way that somebody thinks and the way that they view things and the way that they view stress. And, and you have to, you have to ratchet it up and it's, it's, it's fun at first, I guess, you know, cause you've seen it in the movies you remember it happening to you and yada, yada, yada. But after that, it's, it's a job and it's an exhausting job. I mean, that is two, you do that for two years and it's 24 months, just nonstop. Most of the time, seven days a week, the days are usually 18, 19 hour days. Um, it's, it's rough. I'm ready for it, and it's kind of mm -hmm. you're. I mean, you're the first guy that's or the first person that you know. It, it's kind of on you, I would think, right? Yeah. Well, and and like and so I was training MP soldiers, and you know, and sure enough, as soon as I'm done being a drill sergeant, I get to Fort Hood and get told I'm going to Afghanistan, and I meet my squad that I'm taking to Afghanistan, and two of the kids in the squad, I was their drill sergeant. Really? So it's like shit. I hope I was good. You know, <laughs> like. <laughs> I hope they learned something. Did they, uh, did they joke around about it at all, at all? Later on, they did. They didn't know kind of how to how to react at first, uh -huh. but once they they figure out that you're a human, you know, right. yeah, it's, they kind of probably treated you as you were still their drill sergeant, right? Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. I got called drill sergeant a lot for a long time after I was a drill sergeant. <laughs> you know, so but yeah, it's a it's it's a wild thing. You have you essentially go so drill sergeant school. You go back through basic training again, and through all the phases and the same training iterations. But instead of like learning how to march, you learn how to teach people how to march. 
And instead of rappelling off the tower, you learn how to teach them how to tie their seat. It's called a Swiss seat. And then how to actually safely rappel down the tower and how to shoot. You learn how to teaching someone marksmanship that has no idea how to even hold a gun or a rifle is like that is an art form. And so you have to learn how to teach those things. So I essentially went through basic training again to learn how to do it. And that's the way they, they set it up. Never thought about that. That'd be, uh, and to, yeah, I'm sure they've developed techniques for you guys to like expedite that kind of training. Cause like you said, mm -hmm. a short window to go from, I've never held a gun to accurately shooting the weapon and being mm -hmm. in a stress situation. So, and you've only got so much time. So you've got to cut, the, got to cut the shit. From never mean, held a gun to soldier in Iraq, you know? Cause it would take me a while. You know, I'd be like, okay, man, look here, you know, you hold this, this does the, it would take me a long time. So I'm sure they, and it's not yeah. crazy that way, right? I mean, you're not there to be like their dad. You're there to no. hammer and, it. Uh, yeah. And I mean, but you have to, you have to be able to go from that authoritarian, you know, drill sergeant, stereotypical drill sergeant to being a teacher, but being professional at all times, you know, you never get to, you never get to pat one on the back and tell them it's okay. Cause it's not okay. And it's right. not like we're, we don't expect people to be perfect, but we can't let them be okay with failure because if they fail, you know, something on the battlefield that could be lethal to themselves or someone else. Yeah. So, um, so it's all, it's all purpose driven, you know, yeah. it's fun too. I love, that was, I loved that job. It was exhausting. I could, whenever it was done, I was really glad it was done, but, um, yeah, doing it. what's that? You had fun while doing it. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, and I'm still really good friends with a lot of the guys that I was drill sergeants with. I still work with some of them. Um, and so yeah, it's just, it was, it was cool. It's very rewarding. You get a lot of instant like reward feedback, you know, some kid, you've never seen something so funny as a kid that can't march, you know, and like whenever you walk, you think about swinging your arms and that whenever your left foot's forward, your right hand goes forward. You don't, do you? Right. But until you start marching, now all of a sudden people can't do that. And their right arm's going forward with their right leg and their <laughs> left. And, you know, and then, then you take that kid, and then on graduation day, his mom's there crying, and you've got him doing all kinds of different marching movements and looking all cool. And so it's a, it's a cool job. Tell me a funny story. You want me to tell you a funny story? All right. Yeah, I, I want to know if you've ever cracked, you know. But Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um I'm sure that I crack in front of them a little bit. Um, I'm, I naturally love to joke around and, and I can hurl a, like a funny insult at somebody or, you know, to, to cut somebody down in no time. And sometimes it's just too good. And so you'll crack a little bit, but you start to kind of know whenever it's going to happen. So you'll walk off and like your buddy will know that what you're doing. And so he'll take over for a minute so that you can get out of the room. But so we had a kid and I'm not going to say his name. I'm sure. I highly doubt that, that he listens to the I Don't Drink Coffee podcast, but he was a college linebacker to my very first cycle. He showed up, and he's about 6'4", probably 255 whenever he showed up with single-digit body fat on him and figure out that he's in between his sophomore and junior year of college. He's a linebacker, like a D3 school or something, just a hell of an athlete, and he joined the Army to help uh, finish paying for school, whatever his scholarship didn't pay for and uh, so the joke in the Army is that there's smart rangers and there's strong rangers. So the smart ones can think through a problem, but you need some strong rangers sometimes to, like, make a hole in the wall, right, or to carry all the heavy shit. And, uh, and this kid was a strong ranger for sure. 
Um, and uh, he wasn't like he wasn't going to college on a on an education scholarship. He was there because he was an athlete, you know. And um, but he, you know, just because of how scary looking he was, he was kind of my enforcer in the platoon. So if some kid just wouldn't get right, wouldn't get right. I could go tell him, be like, hey, you better get you know private so and so in line, or uh, or it's going to be a bad day for the whole platoon. No problems, drill sergeant. I'll take care of it. Wouldn't have to worry. I'm sure he whooped some kid's ass at some point, but. Anyways, I figured out that this kid loved macaroni salad, loved it. And if it was in the chow hall and I knew it was going to be in the chow hall that night, I could get him to motivate that platoon. I wouldn't even have to say anything. Could be like, hey, so, you know, if we get 90% of the people qualify on the first time today, right? We would call 90% first time go. You can have macaroni salad tonight. Yes, drill sergeant, I'll take care. He'd run off. Sure as shit, like 100% first time go. Because he, he's probably back there just telling them all the bad shit he's going to do to them. Anyways, told you all that to tell you this. We're doing Warrior Tower, which is where you climb, you got to climb up, you know, and it's several, I can't, I think it's 40 feet or something. And uh, for people like me that are scared of heights, that's really high. And turns out this kid is scared to death of heights. And so we're up there and we're kicking kids off the tower. So we wear like a harness that straps us in so that we can lean out over the edge of this tower and pop them down the tower while they're rappelling. And, uh, but while they're on top, they're, they're only wearing this seat that we have them tie that they wind up clipping into the rope on. So at the top, for safety, they have to crawl like on all fours until they get up and we hook them into the rope so that they're safe. You know, because if not, you get a bunch of kids running around and they're stressed out. Somebody's going to fall and it's going to be a mess. And uh, we're up there and this giant kid, and you can just see he is terrified. I mean, his eyes are this big and he's shaking. And it was kind of cold out, but it wasn't that cold, you know. And he's getting close to us, and I'll never, my buddy Evans is next to me, and he just starts, like, he just starts jacking with him just because, you know, we're bored. We've been kicking 200 kids off this tower all day long, and, you know, it's getting old. He kind of starts jacking with him a little bit, just asking questions, and he won't talk. Like, he won't answer. He's just sitting there, and he's shaking, and he's saying, and then all of a sudden, he just, just this big kid just lets out this, like, whimper, just, Aah! what the and evans goes off what the fuck is wrong with you and he looks down and this kid is pissed all over himself oh my God. i mean everywhere there's a puddle and i'm like son of a bitch well now we're stuck between like do we humiliate him because you never want to humiliate somebody right you never want anything to be personal and so we're like shit we gotta get so i'm like hey man undo your canteen pour some water so nobody else crawls through your piss let's get this over with so Evans is over here. He sees him like, shit. Well, my buddy Roll's house is on the other side, and he's, out, he's retired out of the Army now, so I can, I can kind of call him out a little bit. But uh, so this poor kid, of course, he doesn't come to me or Evans whenever it's his turn. He's got to go to Roll's house. So Roll's house is the opposite of this kid. He's 5'4", 140 pounds on his heaviest day, just a little bitty dude, but just a firecracker. The kid walks up. He's got a giant wet spot on his pants. God damn it, did you fucking piss your pants and just twist off on him for five or six minutes? This poor giant kid's up there just crying, you know, upset because he pissed all over himself. And Evans and I are stuck between, like, being mortified that, you know, the kid's getting humiliated and laughing our ass off. And the whole deal. Finally hook his big ass up, kick him off the tower, and he goes down. And then I think he – I think – some private tried to say something at some point to him about it and got his ass whooped in the barracks because we got like a falling in the shower kind of story or 
or something from some kid with a black <laughs> eye one night. <laughs> this guy lost his credibility after that. Uh, I think he, I think he went and got it back, but he lost so much weight that whenever he graduated, um, like three or four weeks later, I actually got a phone call in our office from like his linebacker coach at whatever university it was. He's like, I sent you a linebacker and you sent a wide receiver back to me because <laughs> the kid lost all of his muscle mass, you know, from all the running and everything. But yeah, yeah, there's. You're not allowed to do, you're not allowed to weight train, right? No, no. So there, I'm, I'm, so our fitness test is changing right now and there's actually some weight training in our fitness test. So that's going to have to change. But uh, but no, traditionally it's all like calisthenics and a lot of running, and um, you know, and this kid I'm sure never ran more than a 40 yard dash in his life before he came to the army, but he could bench press and squat and deadlift a truck, and, yeah. and you know, he was a good kid. He was a good soldier. I'm I'm sure he had a successful career, but but he pissed himself on Warrior Tower, man. You never you never gave him, you never gave him hell about it. No, not but like I said. I I never wanted anything to be like actually personal. And the other know? guys took care of that for you, anyways, didn't they? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You to say. <laughs> yeah, like I, you know, I would especially later on in the cycles, I would, you know, maybe crack a joke about somebody, but very obviously not being serious. But mm -hmm. I never wanted them to think that there was anything personal between us at all, right. especially negatively. You know, so right. no, I would have to stay away from it. But. So do you ever, like, if you're in a guy's face, you know, or, or, you know, doing your drill sergeant type thing, and did you ever, you know, start laughing from a, from an answer that the guy gave you? Or Oh, I don't know if I ever laughed, like, right in their face, but I've been, like, actually rendered speechless by stuff, and I'm trying to think of something specific. But, I mean, just, you know, you start asking some kid, you know, you give him some full metal jacket, what's your major malfunction or whatever, and, and going off and he'd give you some answer about you know he was his mom drank while she was pregnant with him or something and you just okay i guess that explains it we'll just carry on and say something serious that was, yeah <laughs> yeah i mean those kids are they're were joking around they were being yeah did yeah he give, did any of them give you a sarcastic answer back you know and you, a few did yeah so um you'd get some that would try to tough guy you you know they thought they had it figured out and, and didn't think that you could ratchet the heat up enough on them to, to make their life miserable. You know, they think they're tough and they're going to, they're going to withstand anything. But I mean, I'll just turn the stove on right. hotter and hotter and hotter until it's just too hot for the, for the chicken to keep dancing, you know, and, and they, they all, you eventually get all of them. There's a, everybody's got a chink in their armor, you know? Right. But the beauty of that too would be when you got these, uh, he's in with a group of people. So if he screws it up, you just make it worse for everybody. And then exactly, going to be like stop. Yep. You know. Yep. Prison rules go into effect at some point. Like it's you know they're gonna they're gonna straighten him up. Um, and it, we never had anything too bad. But yeah, I, like I said, there were several times some kid would have a knot on his head or something. What happened? I slipped in the shower. Girl, sorry. You sure somebody didn't whip your ass? I'm sure I slipped in the shower. You need yeah. He'd have some dudes behind him. Like he slipped in the shower. Don't. All right, I'm not going to ask any more questions. But the kid didn't give you any more problems after that, you know. Yeah, so what you and I were talking about, so if you ever meet a drill sergeant, they can do what's called the preamble because the way that we teach marching, it's very regimented in the way that you do it. And there's a thing before you teach every single movement, and it's all phased throughout basic training. 
and the whole deal, but they can always still do the preamble and at least do the position of attention. And it, whenever you listen to it, it sounds like gibberish until you like break it down what it actually is. And it's all about, you know, mystique. And you do a lot to like make it, especially in front of the, the new soldiers to make drill sergeants, you know, seem larger than life in the way that they do things. So whenever you pitch a module, so I'll do the preamble to the position of attention and hopefully I don't screw it up and embarrass myself. But so the way you would start this drill sergeant just marches out. So think some dude, you know, uniform sharp as hell with that, with the campaign hat on marches out, won't crack a smile, comes out, marches to the center of the formation and is at the position of attention and just rattles off. So hope, the next movement that I'll name, explain, have demonstrated, and what you will conduct practical work on is the position of attention. The position of attention is the key position for all stationary facing and marching movements. The commands for this, for this position are fall in and attention. Fall in is a combined command. Attention is a two-part command when preceded by a preparatory command, such as squad, tuner, demonstrator. When given, these commands are as follows. Fall in, demonstrator, attention, and then he'll say demonstrator, post, and this other drill sergeant will come running out and just stop and kind of stand like a scarecrow while the drill sergeant goes through and then, and I, I can't do it now in the order that we used to, but starts at the heels of your feet and tells you to put them together with the toes pointed out at a 45 degree angle with the weight of the body waist uh, resting evenly on the heels and balls of both feet. The legs are straight with the knees not locked, the hips are centered and facing forward. I can't remember how it all goes, but every position is like that. So whenever you see like a drill sergeant, that's like the first time a private's like, holy shit, this guy is a psychopath. This is all he does. Like he goes home at night and talks about the stuff. But in drill sergeant school, you have to pitch. It's called pitching. So whenever you, your first week there, you have to pitch the top three, which is the position of attention, uh, rest positions at the halt, which is like at ease, um, stand at ease, and parade rest, which is whenever you see guys standing with their hand behind their back, but it's still a pretty rigid position, and then the hand salute. And you have to pitch all three of those back to back in front of your entire class perfectly while a drill sergeant stands there, it's a drill sergeant leader. So a guy that's uh, been a drill sergeant for over two years and is now teaching drill sergeants um, stands there with it in front of him on a clipboard, marking each word that you get wrong. And each time that you said something wrong or, or messed something up and you're only allowed, you know, so many screw ups or whatever. So anyways, that's what I was talking about. Whenever you and I were messaging back and forth, it's just somehow we got onto it about memorization or something. I can't remember. And, uh, I was like, oh, yeah, dude, I can still pitch. I mean, I went to drill sergeant school from August to October of 2007, and I can still pitch like that, the preamble at least. And I could probably, if I put, looked up the module, I could pitch the position of attention probably inside of, if I looked at it long enough, I could do it pretty well inside of five or six minutes. Because you've done it how many times? A million times, yeah. And then practicing it, I mean, I used to stand in front of the in drill sergeant school before we would get, because you'd have to pitch different modules every week. I mean, I'd be in my barracks room at drill sergeant school staring in the mirror, just pitching this module over and over and over and over and over. And during breaks in class at drill sergeant school, you just see students looking in their book, memorizing modules, just, you know, one right after another for 10 weeks. So I was born just outside of Amarillo in a town called Hereford. Um, and if you hear Hereford and think of a Hereford cow, that's all that's in Hereford, Texas. It's just giant feedlots. Um, and that's where my dad, his whole family was raised, where my mom was raised. Um, but like shortly thereafter, they moved to Amarillo, which is like 35 minutes away. Um, and I lived there through the fourth grade. Yeah. And then uh, my mom got a job in San Antonio. 
So I moved with her and my stepdad down there for a year, maybe a little bit more than a year. And in that time, my dad wasn't a police officer yet. Um, he was working in Amarillo as a, he worked for animal control, you know, he was a dog catcher or whatever. And then um, he moved to Dallas. He got a job working. Uh, his family ran a home health business for a long time. And about that time, right before the sixth grade, I moved in with my dad. And, um, and we were in Dallas through about halfway through my ninth grade year. And he had always wanted to be a cop. Um, and then he finally just, he had gotten sick of what he was doing. He hated working in an office and finally just, you know, started applying everywhere. Got, he always wanted to move back to Amarillo and uh, he got hired. So we moved back and um, he's been doing it ever since. He's, he was a patrolman for a long, he's a hell of a cop too. Um, but he's a, uh, he was a patrolman for a long time and then he worked narcotics for several years. And then he was on a Homeland Security Task Force. Man, I don't know how long he was on that. And then, uh, and then now he's back working, you know, kind of in that narcotics realm again. So he's still um, doing it. Oh, yeah. Wow. yeah it? So my, my parents are very young. So I'm 36. My dad will turn 53 this year. And my mom just turned 55. So I have very, very young parents. They were very young whenever I was born. So, um, but yeah, yeah, he's out there still getting after it all the time. He's in Amarillo? Yeah. And if you knew him, and it, like if you knew him, you know, in his real life, and, and then I told you that he was a, a narcotics officer, you wouldn't believe it. Like it's a, it's a completely so out of character for him. Just, well, it kind of, it kind of, it's kind of the same way with you, you know, it's, most yeah. people that has been where you've been, it just seems like they have a different type of personality. And that's just my experience, you know, especially, you know, you've been in there, you've been in the military for your whole adult life. Yeah. Well, half my life, really. Like, so I'm, so 36 and, and I'll hit my 18th year in the military this year. So I've spent literally half my life in the army. Yeah. It's crazy, man. Yeah. But you can tell there's, there's a few things to me that are, that are giveaways. Like if uh, a lot of, in my experience, a lot of military guys always have a watch on. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He definitely. Oh does. yeah, naked without a watch. Right? At all times, yes. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what that's from. I don't know where that you know if it's a being on time thing or whatever. I don't know where that comes from. It's uh. Yeah, where does that come from? So yeah, it's a, it's a, so it comes from like so I never wore a watch till I joined the army, but uh, but like you don't want to be late to anything. Being late is you know, cardinal is a cardinal sin for us. So, and, and also like, there's always a hit time. You've always got to, you know, something's always coming up that you can't be late for. So I have like an obsession. If I don't know what time it is, you know, for, so if I'm working out, I don't have my watch or something and I don't know what time it is. Like I can't concentrate on what I'm doing. I have to know what time of day it is. Like I'm never that dude. Like, yeah, I just looked up at the clock and it was four hours later than I thought it was. Like, no, I knew exactly what time it was the whole time I was doing it. <laughs> so, you, so you would say you have the, does you, you and your dad have the same personality basically or? Whenever it comes to work stuff, yeah. Um, I mean, is he pretty, like you said earlier, you wouldn't really know that he was in narcotics. Has he got a pretty easygoing type personality? And in, it, in, in real life, yeah. But at work, he's, uh, he's very rigid, very by the book um really tough and hard like he doesn't uh he's not a cop that's going to cut you many breaks but he's that way with everyone you know what i mean i mean he's fair across the board but like you take my two kids and then my sister just had a baby this week and you see him like with his grandkids that dude you, there's no way he buys crack 
or whatever. For, <laughs> like it's, it ain't happening. And then, but my wife says the same thing at work. Like whenever for me, like if she comes, she sees me dealing with people at work. Like it's not, not the same person. And like people that I'm friends with at work, they see me outside of work with my family and stuff. And they're, wow, you're really different. Like, like I love kids. I love playing with kids. Mm-hmm. You know, I always played with Ben's kids whenever I was there. Yeah. And you know, just a big, but like at work, I'm, I have a good time at work. I'm not like deathly serious and I don't just walk up and down the hall cussing people out, but I don't, uh, I don't have a whole lot of time for, for BS at work. You know, I'm pretty, and I'm, I'm to the point. I'm very blunt with people, especially at work, but I try to, I try to not do that because that kind of sucks whenever you're to have that on all the time, you know, right? I like having, I like hanging out, having a good time. Yeah. Well, I can see how, I mean, for anyone, uh, it, it, it would be a uh, it'd be hard to be relaxed in the positions that you just from what you've told me so far the things you're doing I mean you brief it, to me in a military setting it would be hard to ever relax I don't know if that's a thing or not I've never been yeah I mean we we have a good time you know especially whenever it's you know like like guys that are my same rank my friends my peer group or whatever and whenever it's just us we sit around and cut up and tell jokes or whatever but I mean, we're in a serious business, so it, you know, it takes a pretty serious mindset while you're at work. Even the, the mundane things that we do are serious. They have a serious, you know, reason for being done. So it kind of, I guess it kind of forces it. Yeah, well, and I, mean, I probably get that from my dad, I would think. When I played football, you know, that locker room mentality, sure, you're always joking, but you're always, uh, there's always this underlying masculinity mm-hmm. to everything, you know. I'm sure yep. that kind of goes along with what you're talking about. I mean, you don't want to. Yeah. You don't want to give up too much room to anybody. You don't want anybody to get anything over on you, so you gotta kind of be on guard just a little bit or whatever. Oh yeah, yeah. It's and I and I walked right out of a high school locker room into the army, so it, yeah. you know, and it was the same way. So, did you play football in high school? Yeah, I played football. I played baseball right up until high school and for a little bit um, in high school. I wish I'd have kept playing baseball, but um, I had a a bad experience with a coach and. Instead of, you know, making making that right and and sticking with it, I kind of let it go and stayed in football. But um, but yeah, I played at Emerald High, uh, which has a real storied history. Um, like uh, a couple of coaches for University of Texas coached at Emerald High back in the day, like in the fifties. Um, my senior year, we broke the record for like most consecutive playoff appearances. We weren't that good. We just weren't in that good of a district. My senior year. Um, but, uh, we played against some, I played against some superstars, um, Cedric Benson. Um, he just died, what, like a year ago, yeah. but played at the University of Texas there. So we played against him. What's that? Motorcycle Ray. Didn't he die on a motorcycle? Yeah. Yeah, he did in Austin. Yeah. I played against him in high school. Um, Roy Williams, the wide receiver that was with the Lions and then the Cowboys for a while. Um, whenever I lived in Dallas, I went to a school, it's called Duncanville, um, and so if you saw they've been to the state championship the last two years they won one my freshman year but on um, the last two years they've been not this season that just ended but the season before they lost on that Hail Mary in the 5A state championship game in Cowboy Stadium like mm-hmm. on the last play that yeah. was Duncanville so there I played with uh gosh I don't know how many of those kids went D1 um they must have had probably 10 from my class that I grew up with through junior high that went and played D1 football um, and then a lot of junior college players and things like that. A couple that I played with in Amarillo went and played 
Um, so I got to, I, I, I was around some stellar athletes growing up. Um, you know, and I was just, I was a, I was a decent high school player, I guess. Nothing special, but it was my life. That's all I cared about. What's that? what did you play? Um, I was a linebacker. And then my last two years, we ran kind of a weird defense and we had this hybrid position that they called a, uh, an anchor, but it was kind of a hybrid between a defensive tackle and a linebacker, depending on, you know, what was going on. And I got moved to it. Um, I just like to hit people play for it. So my high school coach, my position coach was one of like the, he probably got me more ready for the army than anybody. I mean that you want to talk about a dude that just, if it was anything less than perfect, he, he wasn't going to have it, but a great man. I'm still in touch with to this day. Really? Um, but yeah, yeah. I credit, credit him a lot with uh, me being successful in the army because he didn't, a dude did not mess around. I mean, he was nose to the grindstone, you know, but that's great. Oh, and we've on several times uh, in life and on the podcast, I draw a lot of uh, similarities from sports that translate over into life. You know, mm-hmm. like that thing. Like that's why I think it's a shame whenever kids don't play sports just for you know uh, preparation for life or whatever you want to say. They need. I feel like kids need somebody that that cares about them, but that isn't gonna. So. I'm always going to be, I'm always going to kind of side with my kids. I'm always going to try to help them along and, you know, and, and do things for them. But I think every kid needs an authority figure that cares for them, but that, that doesn't care about what the excuse is, doesn't care why you think you can't do it. Like, no, you're going to, you're going to go back to work at it. You're going to, you know, like, I think every kid, it's, it's very character building to, to have that. Like, I, I don't care that you don't feel good. I don't care that your girlfriend broke up with you today. I don't care. I don't care. You're going to get this done because the world doesn't care. You know, where a good coach comes in. Yep, absolutely. Life lessons and the sport itself. Yeah, yeah. Kids need to lose. You know, they need to get their heart broke. That's something that they, you know, that's unfair. They need to work harder than the other guy and have that guy beat them because you know he hit the shot or he did whatever. Like it, you need that. Yeah, I don't ever remember winning anything and learning from it. There's always that aspect yeah. take that I'm learning. Yeah. From, you know? Right. Yep. I'm right there with you, man. I mean, it's it, you want to make it good for your kids, you know. I mean, and as a parent, you want them to have a good life and, you know, a, a decently easy life. But also at the same time, you know, we, we talk about it a lot, and Ben and I do for sure, uh, but you want them to lose. You want them to – not that you want something bad for them, but, I mean, that's where that's where they become people, you know. It's, yep. Because there's going to be plenty of things to kick your ass whenever you get out there doing it on your own. So, I mean, you kind of need that. It's important. You don't want to see them lose. I, I love to see my kids win, but uh, they damn sure get better when they lose. I know that. Yeah. I have to stop myself. seems like almost daily of fighting some battle for my kids or something just because I want, you know, I want everything to go. And I got to – my wife half the time going to be like, hey, why don't you just shut up and let them work it out? Like, no, I'll, I'll call that teacher. I'll call her. <laughs> or I'll go up there. I'll do it. She's got to stop. Probably because I have girls too. Like I think if I had boys, I'd I'd be a lot harder on them. But yeah, it's it's rough, man. If I was in like you're in Germany now, I would especially, and I'm sure there's you know, I mean, you guys probably have stuff. Um, I'm assuming on base type. Yeah, yeah. My kids go to like American schools on a base. American teachers, the whole thing. So it's actually really, really good schools. 
Are they so, learning German? Um, my oldest, so uh, Lizzie is going to be a freshman next year. She's in the eighth grade. She's taking German. And then uh, my youngest starts junior high next year, but I don't know if she'll take any German. So we've got to think about we're going to move. So my oldest doing that, she gets all the high school credit done because she'll have taken three years. But if my youngest takes German next year and then her next school doesn't offer German, she just wasted a year. So we got to we kind of have to look at things whenever they start. We got to plan ahead a little bit because they've only got one school year left after this one. To give her a good we move again. start, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, I don't know. She may wind up taking Spanish just because what right. school doesn't teach Spanish, you know. So, but, yeah, my oldest will be done. She'll, she's doing actually like high school level German right now. But luckily they both took after their mom, and they're pretty smart. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you guys liking it over there? Yeah, it's fun, man. We've traveled a ton. We just went to it. So right now we're dodging the coronavirus, so we're not traveling anywhere. But uh, there's, there's like a confirmed case in town right, right. now. Oh. But uh, yeah, but uh, we went to Italy, what, two weeks ago? Um, we spent a four-day weekend down in Italy. Um, we've been to France, Luxembourg, Belgium. Um, I've been to Poland, the Netherlands. Um, we're planning some trips to like the Czech Republic. Uh, back to Italy. So we went to a little town called Bari, Italy, which is like on the heel of the boot, if you look on the map down on the coast. Um, but we want to go to like Rome and in those places. Um, so we're starting to plan some of that out. Um, we want to go back to Poland, Hungary, we're starting to talk about I'm trying to hit as many places as we can while we're here. I mean, I can, I could drive to Paris from my house in four hours. So, yeah. Yeah, it's all just right here. We haven't done Austria yet. Austria's right down the road, basically. So, yeah, we like it. I mean, I'll be happy to come home. Right. Um, but, yeah, it's cool. Well, yeah. I mean, I'll you're be like a loser, Scott. <laughs> 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 we, we joke with our kids all the time, like, y'all have no idea how good you have it. You know, we just took a weekend trip to Italy, to the yeah. coast of Italy, you know, and, and all this. And, and it didn't really cost us as much, you know. For us, it was um, a real cheap flight. They have a thing over here called Ryanair, which is like the Spirit Airlines of of Europe. And I mean, it is a it's like a Greyhound bus with wings. It's not there's nothing glamorous about it, but uh, but cheap flights, and we got a, a reasonably cheap hotel because it's the off season. So you know, we just went and did it. And then during Christmas, they have Christmas markets everywhere. Every town has a huge outdoor market, and you know they sell. You know, all, everybody's got a booth that they're selling stuff that they made from home and yada, yada, yada. So we drove this year. I think we did like four different countries hitting Christmas markets besides all the ones in Germany. And they were all like a drive. Like we'd get up and we'd drive there in the afternoon, drive back that night kind of thing just because we're centrally located. It's cool. And we really you, enjoy it. Have you guys went and uh, looked at any of the um, – like the World War II stuff or any of the – Yeah, so uh, – um, we live kind of close to the Black Forest, but this area of Germany didn't have a ton go on. But we've been to, uh, I've been to the Battle of the Bulge site in uh, Belgium several, uh, I think I've been three times now. Yeah. So we went once as a family whenever we first got here. Then we took a work trip where we took a bunch of soldiers out there and walked to the battlefield. And then, of course, they have a huge museum and all that stuff that you can go to. And then uh, we took, um, my wife's parents came. Uh, in November when we took them. So I've been there three times. I love there. Um, we were going to uh, 
Normandy this year, last year for the anniversary, had to cancel it because of a work thing. And then this year, I think we're not going to go this year in order to, instead of getting a hotel, we're going to do it next year before we go, before we move back to the States. Um, we're going to get a, do an Airbnb out there and spend the whole weekend for the anniversary. But last year we really wanted to go because it was the 75th anniversary. Um, and it just, it didn't work. Um, and I, I've been to a few other sites throughout Germany for, so for work, um, once or twice a year, we'll have like a day trip to some World War II site. We'll do a study on it before we go. And, you know, different people have to teach different parts of it to see it. Um, it's really cool. That would be, uh, especially being where you're at, one of the first things I thought about was uh, like the, you know, in, in proximity, you got the concentration camps that are uh-huh. sure within driving distance and all that kind of thing like that. So it'd yep. be really nice yeah, so I haven't seen a concentration camp yet, but I'm not going to leave without doing it. Um, we're, we, we fight the battle of, like, what's too much for our kids? Sure. Because I mean, that's a, that is a heavy, heavy thing to go see. Like, uh, people have been to, like, the chow and stuff like that. Um, like, man, it is. Like, you don't go in there and giggle and take pictures and stuff. Like, it's, it's a very heavy thing. So yeah. um, we're trying to figure out which one's the best one and, and that type of stuff to go see. But, yeah, we're going to go do all of it. But, you know, we may never get the opportunity again. So, right. yeah, I'd be just like you about it. As far as I might even slip off on my own and go there, just to yeah, really experience it or whatever. Yep, I went to a week long school in Poland. Um, when did I go? When was I there? I think I was there in October. So I got to go to a NATO school for a week, and I was the only American student there. Um, but that was cool because yeah, that's what I was. Whenever we weren't in class, I was slipping off, seeing different parts of this little college town in Poland that nobody's ever heard of. Um, but just getting to see everything, it was, it was cool. And like, I'm going to a, a month school in April, I'll be gone for a month. Um, but my wife has taken my kids to, uh, what's the damn palace called in Paris? Uh, the Venetian. Um, not the Venetian. What the hell is it called? God damn it. Anyways, she's taking her, I have no interest in going cause it's like art and all this shit. And that's not my thing. Um, <laughs> So she was like, "Hey, so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the girls and and we're gonna go, we're gonna go to this palace and while you're gone, is that okay with you?" I'm like, "Yeah, that's fine. You go right ahead. I'm good." <laughs> uh, yeah, the Louvre would probably uh... the Louvre. So that's in Paris, which we're gonna do that together. We've had two trips planned. Uh, well, one real trip planned, and our dog sitter actually fell through on us at the last minute. We were gonna go at Thanksgiving. Um, to do actual Paris itself, but she's going to go to this palace. And I sound like a moron because I can't even think of the name of the damn thing, but um, she's all fired up about it. I'm like, yeah, you go right ahead. I don't, I'm not worried about missing that one. <laughs> I'll catch the next one. Right. So, yeah. How is it crossing the border from Germany to Paris? Or to Paris? Uh, it does, so dude, it's like driving to, to Arkansas for you guys. So it's the EU, the European union. Like you just drive. Oh, and, okay. No border patrol or, or every now and then they might do a checkpoint, but I've never seen one. Like oh, you okay. hear about them, um, but like so even so, like whenever I flew to Poland, nobody ever checked my passport. Whenever I flew back, nobody ever checked my passport. Italy, the same thing, because really? the flight originated from a European Union country, and and back. So, like so, my lieutenant, uh, my my very first lieutenant, the very first platoon I had in Georgia, right after I left McAllister got married last Christmas, so Christmas of 18. And just so happened she's British, 
and the wedding was just outside of London. So for Christmas that year, that was our Christmas present was we didn't buy anything for the girls or for each other. We went to London on Christmas day and we spent like four days in London and then went to his wedding there outside of town. Then that's the only time we've gotten a stamp because they were, you know, now they've withdrawn from the EU, but at the time they were going through it. So that's the only time we've gone through customs going in and out of Europe or traveling within Europe anyways. Whenever I flew home for, to the States for my sister's wedding last year, um, they checked me on the way out and on the way back in, but that's only because it didn't originate there. Well, like when you're in Germany, uh, like for instance, what do you guys do for a vehicle? I mean, do you just buy one while you're there? Or? So we, so the army pays to ship one. So we shipped my wife, so she's got a Volkswagen SUV. Um, so we shipped it over here. And then I had this little beater BMW that I bought whenever I got here. And, uh, and it's kind of a thing here. So like a soldier buys a beat up car for, you know, say two grand, he drives it for his three year tour. And then whenever he leaves, he sells it for 1900 to the next guy. And then just on down the line, well, the Beamer that I got was on its last leg and it spent more time just sitting in my driveway than anything. And, uh, so I wound up, uh, I bought a Jeep while I was here. Um, a Jeep I've always wanted one and got a deal on a brand new one, um, and didn't have to pay taxes on it. So I went ahead and pulled the trigger and got it and did the first, you know, so, but I'll have to pay to ship that one. So the army will ship one vehicle back and won't cost me a dime, but I'll have to pay out of pocket to ship mine. It'll be about two grand. So that'll hurt. But Yeah, that's what uh, my cousin uh, Dwayne was telling me whenever he was stationed in England that uh, he bought some kind of a little car while he was over there just to drive around, like you said. <laughs> Just sold it whenever he left or something like that. Yep. So you just register the her car just like I mean, um so we have to so it's a it's a customs thing, so we have to register it through the army um and US customs who then register it with the government here because like it's the same thing like we talked about before is you only get so many that they can bring because it's a strain on their economy. And then our fuel is rationed that we buy on base. So fuel prices here, if you bought them off base uh, um, on the economy, or I don't know, what, what are you guys paying for a gallon of gas? What are we right now? About $1.90, oh. isn't it? No. Is it that low? It's, uh, Has it went up? I paid two oh five uh, a few days ago. All right, two oh five. So you're paying two oh five for a gallon. They're paying like a dollar, I think a dollar sixty or a dollar seventy a liter. So almost triple what you're paying per gallon. Well, we get US market prices on base, but it's rationed. We only get so much a month. I mean it's plenty for what I do. I've never ran out of my ration or whatever. Oh but, uh, so the, yeah. So each vehicle. And so that's why you're limited the number of vehicles uh, that you can that you can have so that you can get gas on base and, and all that. So do you do you have a house here? I, I don't even know. Do you do you have a house here at all? Like your truck and stuff? Is it nope. So my truck, uh, the motor blew up on it right before I left. So I pretty much sold it for nothing. Um, and then with the intent of driving a beater here for three years and then buying something new whenever I got back. But now I've got my Jeep, so um, it's all good. But no, we don't own a house there um, in the states or anything. Uh, most of our stuff is here with us, but you get to put um, a good portion of, of what you want into long-term storage while you're gone. Um, so wherever we get stationed next, um, about six weeks before we leave, they'll come pack all this up, 
ship it to the States. We'll have a little bit of temporary furniture and live kind of Spartan for a few weeks. And then uh, all of our stuff will get delivered to, you know, wherever it is that we go. McAllister. Right. Whatever leave here. Uh, the only way I'm going to be stationed in McAllister again is if I'm a recruiter again, and I'm not doing that. So, <laughs> Listen, there's but I'll roll back through and visit. What's some other jobs that you can get? I mean, we've got good jobs here, kind of. You do. So, um, the, so you know, at 20 years is the first time I'm eligible to retire, which I'm, you know, 99% sure I'm going to stay in a little bit past 20 at least. Well, I was going to um, ask you about what your future looked like or what you thought your future was going to look like. Yeah. Teresa and I have talked about um, if, you know, if the right job was in McAllister, we'd move back in a heartbeat. I mean, that is the, that's the only place that we go back and visit where we've been stationed in the Army. Like, we go visit family, and we always make a point to roll through McAllister. I mean, I think I've been back, when did I, I left in 15, and I came back, I've been back once a year, except for um, 20, since I've been here. And I haven't seen um, you Yes, you have. When? Ben. The first two times I came back, to, I stayed at your brother-in-law's house for like an entire weekend. You were there. It doesn't surprise me. It doesn't <laughs> <laughs> I remember. It's not served me well. Yeah, man. I don't, I don't recall. I don't. I think the only time I didn't see you whenever I came back to visit was whenever we were moving. Okay. Here. All right. Well, I know, but I get so sad. Mm-hmm. So I just I feel like I haven't seen you forever. It just feels yeah. like forever. Well, it has been a long time. Like, uh, I flew, so in May, I flew back from my sister's wedding. And, like, I checked in at the airport at DFW or whatever whenever I landed. And uh, and the first person that called me is Brian. Hey, dude, are you coming up here? I'm like, no, man. But I did just fly over Lake Eufaula like 30 minutes ago. And, uh, like, I could see it out of the plane window, you know. That's, yeah. That's fun. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, we miss it. Um, we've had people visit us, not you, you know, you guys drove all the way, you go to the beach or whatever. And we were in Georgia and you were in the beach in Alabama and you just couldn't keep coming East. But we've had other folks come and visit us in Georgia. It's a long way. Um, Cause I've yeah. been to Georgia before. That's a long ways from. Oh, it's all the way out there, man. Yeah. All the way out there. You eat at the pirate uh, restaurant in Savannah. Yeah. Yeah. They Absolutely. Around. Yeah, yeah, where they used to sneak them from back out to the port, the prisoners and shit. Yeah. I'm shocked. And, and, and at the time when I went, I was around 22, I think, years old, 23. And so I had not been away from, you know, home mm -hmm. that much. And when they were telling, I mean, there was a huge hole in the ground. And, you know, and I'm like, what's that for? And then I tell you the story, you know, of how that's how they used to sneak people out of the bar. And they would, like, like actual pirates, yeah. At one point, a cop or a policeman, they said, was kidnapped and put on a pirate ship, basically. And I think he was out to sea for a, like a year, I think. Yeah, yeah until the ransom was paid or something. Yeah, that's a pretty cool story. And you can, they, like, you can find the other end of the tunnel where it pops out, where they used to take them down on the port. Because the river runs from the ocean right down downtown Savannah. It's called a River Street. And yeah, Savannah's a cool place. We we liked it out there. Yeah, it was it was really yeah, really freaky story though. I was like, hey, yeah, no, I, there's I, a lot I, of. Uh, I want to get out of this restaurant. You know, we did a uh, a bar crawl, but it was a haunted or a pub crawl, I guess they would call it, but a haunted pub crawl, and you just go bar to bar 
with a tour guide and they tell you all the different things that are haunting all these different pubs and and we loved it down there man it was awesome yeah it's really cool really cool place savannah georgia mm-hmm. ivy islands I've, never, uh, I've been to georgia for about well it was one afternoon i went out there to a stone some kind of a stone rock city or something like that and then turned around and drove back i don't know it's, it's on the uh, eastern edge uh, or, i'm sorry on the western edge the I, western edge yeah i just wanted to go to say i've been to georgia uh, okay. across yeah across yeah. the border yeah I've done that in a few states. <laughs> Did that in Maine. <laughs> um, yeah. now, listen, before we stop or anything like that, right. we still have something else. We still have a, a, a quite a bit to talk about. Okay, okay. I didn't thought maybe we were winding down here. I wanted to talk about that one thing that you mentioned. So. Well, I, I was telling him out in the hallway about, um, I mean, you had mentioned it earlier about the prison. Yeah. Kansas, and I want to talk about that. I know you and I have talked about some of the high-profile, you know, prisoners that um, were there while you were there. So I wanted to touch base on that. So for the record, while I was working at that prison, it was one of the times I drove back down and visited McAllister and saw you, and we talked about all this. Okay, I thought that so was one a- of the visits. But uh, yeah, yeah, so I remember that. <laughs> So whenever I first got to uh, to Georgia, to Fort Stewart, I took over a platoon. So like I said, right now I'm in an MP company, which is like 170 people. A platoon is the next smaller unit from that that makes up a company. There's three of them. Um, and there's about 40 or so soldiers in it. And, and so I was in charge of one of those, me and a lieutenant. Um, and they had at the U.S. Disciplinary Barracks in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, is like the military's um, biggest prison, most high secure facility. So anyone that, uh, that has a service sentence over 10 years, um, or, you know, committed murder, they have death row there. Um, they haven't executed anyone, I think since like the sixties or seventies or something, but supposedly we're close to that, um, that streak coming to an end. Um, if you watch the news, but, uh, so anyways, they had, they had a unit deployed from there to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Um, and so they're, they're MPs that work there, but they're a different specialty. They're actually correction specialists. So they, they specialize in working in prisons and with detainees. Um, so they sent them down to Cuba for a deployment to work at Guantanamo Bay. And, excuse me, they were having trouble manning all their shifts with who they had left. And so they deployed a few platoons at a time to go work. And mine got selected and we got to go. So we were there from like January to May of 16. So um, I'd never been there before. You always hear all these stories and everything of of what's going on in the old prison, the old Leavenworth prison that you always hear stories and see on movies um, is still there. Most of it is like falling down. They've got a new high tech facility behind it, but you drive right past it with the old walls and everything. looks like Shawshank, but uh, did you ever go? The old one? Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, Leavenworth Penitentiary is just outside the gate, and I went in there, too. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Um, But anyways, while I worked there, uh, inside the prison where my soldiers were working, I would go in there every day and check on my soldiers, but I didn't didn't work a shift or anything. I supervised my guys, managed their schedule, and all that type of stuff, kind of the administrative pieces of it. But, you know, they had everyone in there from uh, Bradley Manning or Chelsea Manning. Um, Uh... Who else is a big one? Uh, the guy that just got released, Clint Lawrence, was one of the guys that got pardoned by the president. Um, I don't know how long has that been, six or eight weeks ago. Um, he was in there at the time. 
so uh, Hassan, the Fort Hood shooter, was in there. He was on uh, death row, so got to got to see him again. Um, Bales, uh, which is I think it's, it's Ryan Bales, the guy that walked off the, uh, the fire base in Afghanistan. And um, no, 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 not Bergdahl. He was never in there. Um, Bales is Bales is the one that walked off and murdered all the Afghan civilians. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. Um, no, Bergdahl never did time. So he was, I think he was under some type of restriction and under guard, like in the barracks, but he never did time, like in a military prison. Um, was you ever around him or, or Bergdahl? No. Um, I had a friend of mine in that unit at Fort Stewart, though, that whenever he first got uh, given back to U.S. forces and got to San Antonio, he was. Um, basically in charge of escorting him for about three or four months though. Oh, okay. So yeah, he said that was wild, but no, I've never. That, that searched for him when he. When he went so out. whenever I got there, he had not been missing that. Whenever I got to Afghanistan, he had not been missing that long. Um, like I think under a year, I'd have to, I'd have to look up the timeline of when it happened, but I think under a year he had, he had been taken captive. Um, and it was not terribly far uh, from Kunar. It wasn't in Kunar where he got taken, but he was pretty close by. Um, so we would get intelligence every now and then that he had been moved through the area or something. Um, mm -hmm. So it was always a thing. Um, but yeah, I knew I knew a lot of people that were in his AO whenever he walked off and all that yeah. went down. I, I uh, knew yeah. you were somewhat close to it, so I, I wasn't mm -hmm. sure all that all went down. And yeah. do you say that he went AWOL or do you say that he deserted or is it the same thing? Um, it's essentially... So the difference between AWOL and desertion is a time frame. You're AWOL until you've been gone for 30 days, and then you're a deserter okay. in a time of war. Yeah. So you go AWOL initially. And yeah. Then yep. And, and I think desertion, I, think I would have to look, but I think desertion has to happen during a time of war. You know what I mean? So I just yeah. didn't want to do it wrong when I said AWOL. I didn't want to. Yeah. AWOL is fine. He walked off. So. Okay. So back to Leavenworth. Yeah. Um, so it didn't see anything too crazy in there um, for the most part. And I kind of asked him about it there. So everybody that's in that jail, you know, the, the shortest sentence anyone's in the, the USDB is 10 years. So they don't want you to met. They don't want to be messed with. Like they know they've got to be there. They've got to do their time. Um, there is parole in military prisons, but or, or some form of it, but it doesn't happen very often. Like, so they know they're serving their sentence. Right. So they don't want to be jacked with. They don't, there's not a whole lot of fighting that goes on. There's not, you don't get a whole lot of the crazy stuff going on. Um, but um, there's, it's, I don't know. It's one of the spookiest, not spooky, but just the weirdest thing. So they've got a barber shop in there, right? So these guys, just like a, a regular prison, they get licensed as barbers. They get trained um, and they actually get like certified as barbers. Um, but to be in the, going to the barber shop and somebody's getting their hair cut and like the dude that's cutting his hair, you know, murdered somebody 25 years ago in his barracks room or something. It's like, Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. You want to let him get to you with some clippers, but, um, <laughs> and then, uh, like, uh, it was kind of surreal seeing someone like, like Chelsea Manning, who was so famous at the time, um, worked in the, uh, they have like a wood shop where they would build things and then they were sold at this store um on Fort Leavenworth like you could order a coffee table that they made in the wood shop right and that's where Chelsea Manning worked um 
you know, walk back there and, you know, and make Manning's making a table or making a chair or, you know, making some stand for something or whatever. And just kind of wild. Um, yeah, so nothing too, too crazy really went on at, uh, at Leavenworth. It's a pretty tame and boring existence, but um, I, I don't want to go there. So I'm going to try to avoid that. There's nothing really goes on in Kansas, you know. No, and so Leavenworth, so so that's Fort Leavenworth, right? The Army base, and it's got two jails on it. It's got the USDB, which is the high end facility, and then it's got the regional confinement facility on it, which is a smaller jail for shorter sentences and like lesser crimes. They have a lot more issues inside that facility. My guys didn't work in that one because it's a short sentence, and you'll get more of the dudes that are like, "Man, I'm only here for," you know six months, eight months, whatever. So they'll get a lot more fighting and a lot more of the craziness going on that you hear about inside jails. But the town of Leavenworth outside the gate is nothing but prison. So you have the Leavenworth pen, the penitentiary. Um, that's where Michael Vick served his time um, on his whole deal. And then and you've had, uh, there's some other real famous, what's uh, that? Did you say Michael Vick? Michael Vick, yes. He was at the Leavenworth pen in Kansas is where he served time on uh, his deal. And this place is actually like Shawshank. Like I'm talking, it's old, gray, nasty place. Um, you see it, it looks awful. And you're just like, oh my God, it's terrible. Well, I got to go in. So um, at some point in a military prisoner's like process, they run out of all their appeals and they can be officially discharged from the military. And, uh, and once they do that, they will file to be the, the slang term for it, they call it FedExing. They get basically extradited out into the federal system and um, because they have a better chance of parole, I guess, in the federal system than they do in the military system. So whenever it gets approved, they'll get like a group of them, like seven of them. You have to move them from the USDB on base to the Leavenworth pin, and then from there they get doled out into the federal system. You know, kind of, I think, I think they usually try to move them closer to where like their home of record is or something. I don't know. Well, anyways, they don't tell them whenever it's happening for like security reasons, because you literally drive them over in like a prison van. Um, they just know that it's been approved. It's going to happen at some point. Well, one day they get woken up at 2.30 a.m., taken out of their cell, strip searched the whole deal, put their clothes back on, put out into the van and taken over to the Leavenworth pen. So that there's no way of it getting out. Well, I got picked to do an escort and each prisoner it's a one for one thing. So every prisoner getting FedEx has to have an escort. And they asked me to escort one time and I got to escort this dude to inside the Leavenworth pen where literally you go through these stone walls. It's old school looking bars that slide open. You go in, they slam them shut behind you. I was scared and I wasn't even having to stay. And then you go in and they're banging on like they're, you know, they're in these giant holding cells and people are banging on the bars and cat calling them and telling them all the shit that's going to happen to them once they get let inside and yada, yada, yada. And you got to stand there while they go through like their strip search and all that until they actually get taken into federal custody. And then you're done and you get to leave. And it's like, shit, man, like that's deterrent enough. Like every 14 year old should have to walk through that place one time. And you would never commit a crime ever. <laughs> that's why I'm shocked at the amount of crime in McAllister. Yeah, like, you got the pin right there. OST right here. You know, it's like, really? You know, you're not far from this place, you know, at all. Yeah. Around here, they're thinking, well, I'm not really going to do any time anyway. So, well, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Well, and then while I was there, they had like botched executions and the whole thing. Like, 
man, that's enough to keep me out of trouble. Like, I don't. Yeah, absolutely. You're going to kill me. Get it right the first time, please. <laughs> absolutely. So, um, what's your favorite dish out there, German food-wise? Um, I like currywurst, and I'm a big fan of beer, and they make really good beer out here. Um, it's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the, what makes German beer so good and why it's so popular is they have purity laws here, and they're only allowed, like, four ingredients. Like, they can't put any fillers in it. They can't put any um, preservatives, anything like that. And so it's very, like, pure, and you can taste it in the beer. It's really, really good. So it's, I mean, you can definitely taste the difference. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Like, so, like I said, I went home in May for my sister's wedding, and that was the first time anybody, like, handed me a Bud Light. Right. And I'd always been like, oh, I'm never going to be a beer snob. You know, I'll just drink Bud Light or Coors Light or whatever's cold in the fridge. Never again. <laughs> never again. Well, you know you got to come back at some point. So what are you going to Yeah, do? but you, you can buy good beer. I just never would do it. Like, I always used to make fun of people because they're beer snobs or whatever. And, that's why you never so, start drinking the good beer because when you do, then you can't go back. Exactly. I screwed up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, I'm, I'm guessing anyways. I, I don't know firsthand knowledge of this, but I'm sure it's a lot more expensive. To live here or just the beer? No, the, the, the good beer, even in the States. It's oh, in the States, the good beer is a lot more expensive. Yeah. yeah. But here, so people drink so much here, it's cheaper. in a re So if we went out and got, you know, like a bratwurst or a schnitzel or whatever at the local restaurant you would order a beer because it's like half the price of ordering water. Damn. Here. Really? Like, yeah, like you'll get a beer and there's nothing for a beer to be like a, like a dollar 50 or a euro 50 or whatever. Um, but like if you order water, it's like one, it's going to come in this big glass bottle for everyone to like share. You get a glass and pour it and it's going to wow. be maybe five euro, six euro for that. And yeah. But it's like a dollar 50 for a beer. So. All I know about, all I know about beer in Germany is from what I learned at Beer Fest, on the movie Beer Fest, anyways. I don't know if I ever saw that one. It's a good movie. It's a yeah. very, very funny. <laughs> you, have, you have my type of sense of humor, though, to find it funny. You probably think it's just stupid, but for me, it was very It's probably right up my alley, yeah. No, it's still, like, it really is really good beer. Like, it tastes good. But here, I mean, so drinking's not a big like, it's not a big deal here. They drink a beer with their breakfast. They drink a beer at lunch. They drink a beer at dinner. It's not like, you know, if Lucas on his lunch break was drinking a beer out at the, the work site or whatever, people would freak out. And here it's nothing. You walk through the Frankfurt airport at 7 a.m., people are eating their sausage McMuffin from McDonald's and drinking a beer. Like, it's just, <laughs> just what they do. But they start at 12. You know what I mean? I mean, it's – right. You know, it's nothing for a 12-year-old kid to have a beer over here, so. Really? Yeah. Yeah, but they don't, like, you know, they're not getting Now, at festivals, they get hammered. I mean, I'm sure you've seen Oktoberfest pictures on the internet, and right. I mean, that's just an absolute shit show. Yeah. But <laughs> so like, nothing I've ever seen. What's that? Are your daughters drinking beer? No. Um, I would let them. I've let them both taste it. Yeah. And they don't like it, they don't like so it. they don't. But, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't let them, like, drink a whole – because, I mean, they'll serve it to you in a giant, giant glass. A 12-year-old? Uh, yeah. Like, so my buddy um, here is married to a German. He's been here for, like, seven years. He keeps, like, getting consecutive assignments. He loves it. Um, so his wife is German, um, never been to the States. 
And so their son, he's three. And uh, so one, he's bilingual. He's three, he can speak German and English just fluently and, and go back and forth between the two. But uh, he drinks near beer, like uh, alcohol-free beer at dinner. So like we'll go out to dinner or whatever and you'll see this kid. So to order a beer, you just, you hold up one finger and say, Ein Bier bitte. And it's like one beer, please. And he orders a beer that way. And whenever he's done, he slams it down and asks for another one. They don't let him drink like alcohol beer because he's three, but he gets the alcohol-free stuff in the restaurant all the time. He loves it. <laughs> yeah. See, my family on my mom's side comes from Germany. That's that's the problem. I'm born in the wrong country. <laughs> <laughs> well, going back to you know. I don't know, the very beginning of your military career, what's something you wish you had known going into it that you, when you started out? Um, like personally or like a, like the overall experience? Like am I giving advice or is it? I would say just uh, anything. Anything, something um, that comes to your mind that you wish you would have known first. I wish I'd have known more about what the Army had to offer besides and, and, and what I'd be interested in. So. Like I said, I thought I wanted to be a cop, um, and which, I mean, I like doing law enforcement and all that, but I, I don't want to do law enforcement work anymore, and I, I figured that out fairly quick. Um, so, so that was a good thing. I wish I had known more about, like, uh, so, like, I never pulled the trigger and, and went and, and tried out to be special forces or to be a ranger or to do any of that. I wish I had known about that stuff coming in. Um, and that, that I would want to do it as badly as I, as I wish I had done, um, and done it whenever I was, you know, 19 and 20, um, and a little bit and didn't have, um, you know, my, my wife and I've been together since we were 16. She's been with me through this whole thing. Um, but like done it whenever I didn't have kids, you know, because that, that changes the whole, uh, whole outlook on things. So I wish I had done that, but, um, I also wish I had known more about what I was really receiving from the army because I could have taken advantage of it. Like I didn't get, I didn't fit. So I've got an associates and a bachelor's, but I didn't finish my bachelor's degree until last summer because I just wasted like the first seven years in the army, not taking advantage of the college money that's out there. You know, I could have a master's degree by now without paying a cent for it. If I'd have just paid attention. So stuff like that, I wish I had a little bit better knowledge, but I didn't have anybody around me that knew any of that. Like my uncle was in desert storm. But um, he was a supply, like a logistics guy. And he joined the Army because during his senior year, he had a kid with, you know, the lady that turned out to be his wife later. But he had no way to support his family. Well, the Army was a guaranteed paycheck, so he joined the Army for a few years and then got out. He wasn't, he wasn't all about it at all. He did his time and got out. So I didn't have anybody that could really tell me about that stuff. That now I wish, and I'm not even saying you know, I might have gone to special forces selection and washed out on the first day. I have no idea. I'm not one of those dudes that, oh, yeah, I could have done that, but I didn't. I just never pulled the trigger and, and went and tried like I wish I had um, just to experience some different things. And just, you know, so I wish I, I guess, said all that to say I wish I'd kind of gone for it a little bit more with some of the, you know, the higher end things. But I don't, I don't regret anything. I mean, I got to do a lot of really cool stuff and, you know. Well, I don't I think, want to go special. I figured that was a big selling point, basically, for a recruiter when you were in high school is, you know, talk about the Rangers or 
you know, special forces, but depends on who you're talking to, you know, you got to figure out, you know, recruiting, you got to figure out what that kid's all about and figure out how the army could help them, you know? Um, and so maybe you didn't, uh, exhibit any of those. I didn't, I I walked in and, and, you know, Hey, I, you know, I want to join the army. Why? Well, cause nine 11. All right. Well, what do you want to do? Well, I want to be a cop someday. Oh, cool. You ever heard about the MPs? You qualify for it. You know, you have to be recruited, basically, right? No, no, dude. I walked in ready to go. I mean, it so was. When you were a recruiter here. Did you utilize a lot of that, you know, information or, or stuff that you knew beforehand about, you know, trying to get, trying to, you know, the, tell the, the recruit about, you know, the special forces of the Rangers or a lot of things? Yeah. If, if, it, if they seem like it, it fit what they, would be good at and what they would like you know you have to the army i mean there's whenever i was a recruiter i could have told you how many different jobs there were because it's on a you know it's on a thing it's part of what they teach you but i mean there really is you there's a there's a place in the army for um people that want to go into the medical field there's a place in the army for just technology whizzes there's a place in the army for you know people that want to hide in the bushes and sneak up on people and shoot them i mean that it's all of that stuff is there so if I would meet, if I met a kid, you kind of try to figure out what makes them tick and figure out how the army, you know, kind of fits that. And you got to kind of shape it that way. So I put a few kids in with uh, ranger contract. So you can get a contract where you're guaranteed to go to ranger school. You know, mm-hmm. you're not guaranteed to graduate, right. but which there, I put a few kids in on it. I think one or two made it through um, that program. Unfortunately, kids get scared of it before they get there and wind up, like getting out of the ranger part of their contract while they're in training. Um, they kind of let the, I don't know, the dragon in the distance kind of get them a little bit, which maybe that would, you know, like I said, maybe that would have been me if I'd have come in with one of those. I don't know. Well, that's kind of the perks of getting recruited and going through that process rather than showing up to the recruit office saying, I'm ready to sign yeah. up. Yeah. You, you know, they're going to, they're more apt to teach you and tell you about. Yeah everything that you you know can do rather than oh okay this sign this guy he's easy let's get him through you know yeah i did my best uh you know as far as writing contracts and things my last year out there because um those kids that i was putting in the army the last year i'd met them whenever they were sophomores and and i knew them and the guy that i worked for initially um that guy donnie i was talking about at the beginning he told me he said listen man i know those sophomores they don't do anything for you right now like you can't put them in. It's illegal. Like it's just not going to happen. They're too young. Yeah, they got. He said, but get to know them because in three years you're going to be on your way out of here. And if they know you and trust you and know that you'll take care of them, they're going to come to you, and you're going to know them already, and you're going to be able to take care of them properly. So my last year, I mean, I spent most of my time just, all right, hey Ben's ready to go now. So I go, you know, find Ben, and we already knew each other, and I knew, you know, what you were into and. and what, what you wanted to do, what you qualified for, and, and made that work for you. And then, you know, and then you tell me about your buddy Lucas, and I go find Lucas, and, you know, and I knew him. And, and I was in good with, especially in Broken Bow, I was in good with all the coaches down there. I was all, we used to do color guard stuff at football games and um, basketball games. I threw out the first, so I gave the Broken Bow uh, high school, they put in a new scoreboard with like a new flagpole and stuff in the uh, in center field. So I had a flag that had flown over our base in Afghanistan with a certificate. Well, I gave that to them because they didn't have a flag for the field. So they had me like throw out the first pitch at their first game. Like, wow. you know what I mean? Well, yeah. I, I wound up putting some of those kids in the army just by doing that. 
you know, you don't have to go be the typical recruiter that's just slinging BS and right. doing that stuff. So, yeah, because that's what you think about when you think of a recruiter. I always oh man, and you fight that the whole time you're out there. I mean, you walk up and you know, you some kid's excited to join the army, and he goes to introduce you to his parents, and first thing he tells you, like, well, I know everything you're going to tell me. It's a lie. So, like, oh, okay, well, that's how we're starting this conversation. Outstanding. <laughs> and and happened all the time. Well, one one last thing I wanted to bring up and talk about was uh, an organization I guess that you were close to while you were here, and I don't know if you still are. I'm sure you are at some point. Uh, the Hornets Nest. Yeah. And I want to talk about them a little bit and yeah. everything behind that. Yeah. And then and if you're okay with it, I'll spin that into something else that that I'm supporting too. So the Hornets Nest is a documentary that they made about the infantry unit that I was attached to in Afghanistan. Um, we actually, um, you were there, we did a, a screening in McAllister whenever it came out, but uh, they went with us. So just a couple weeks before we went home, um, we had some intelligence about basically the biggest warlord in Kunar um, that we could finally get a hold of him. And his, we called him QZR. His actual name was uh, like Kari Ziarachman, I think is how you say it. Um, and so we went for it. And whenever I say two weeks from going home, I'm talking this mission launched on March 29th of 2011. And I think I was at, at my house in Texas by like April 16th or something. So keep that in mind. Um, so we launched uh, and we had, we just happened to have this ABC News reporter with us. And he had been with us through several other things. He was there for a year um, named Mike Betcher. He's a professor at OU, a journalism professor, but he was embedded with us. And uh, things went south fast on this mission. Um, and we wound up losing six guys just that day, that first day. Um, and it was one of those missions that was going to take three days, and we were out there for nine, I think is the total, um, by the time we got out of there, um, so with a lot of wounded, and then the six killed in action. Luckily, we didn't have any more killed. Um, but anyways, the movie um, kind of starts off in about the middle of our deployment with us, um, with some of our guys, and then he broke off, and so he went and stayed with a few other units um, throughout his year with a Marine unit there. Um, and it breaks into there. And then the, the last, I don't know, Ben, what do you think? It's the last third of the movie. It's about that last mission that we did. Do you remember? Yeah, third, if not even close to half. Um, and goes with us straight from our, uh, from the rock drill, which is like the big rehearsal that we do, to launching with us um, whenever we air assaulted onto this objective and, and, uh, and got into it. And he has all the footage um, from the firefight. From, so there was two main objectives. Um, I was on one objective, he was on another, um, where most of the footage came from. Um, but we all got hit at the same time. I can't remember how many hours the initial firefight went for, but it was several. So weather, bad weather rolled in, um, and we got ambushed. We knew we were going to get ambushed whenever the weather went bad, just because of where we were. We were right on the Pakistan border. And uh, um, so bad weather rolled in, we got ambushed and it just went on and on and on for hours and hours. They were hitting us. And then, um, the other objective, I think was about a mile and a half away across the Valley. They were getting hit at the same time. Um, and then, so, you know, of course we're all trying to call for artillery at the same time. We're trying to get medevacs in the medevacs can't fly because of the weather. And then once they do, they're trying to prioritize, you know, who's got the most hurt at their location, who's hurt the worst. And then uh, one of the medevac helicopters actually basically got shot down. It was able to limp back to base. But uh, as they were coming in, trying to get one of our guys, 
um, got turned around because it got uh, so badly shot up. Um, but anyways, through that, uh, and the movie is not, so there's a, there's a couple other documentaries. One of them is called Restrepo um, that you've probably heard of that happened just across the river from us in the Corngall Valley. Um, and it's got a little too much like blood and guts for me. Like there's an there's a American soldier that gets killed at one point in that movie and you actually see them like moving his body. And, uh, the Hornet's Nest did a really good job of capturing everything and the emotion of all of it without showing any of that. Um, which I thought was great, um, because you don't need to, you know, you don't need to see, you know, one of our guys all shot up and, um, and dead. it just, it doesn't add anything to it. And I'm not taking away anything from Restrepo. I mean, it was a, it was a great documentary too, but I just didn't think it was necessary. But anyways, through that, um, so like I said, I was attached to that unit. There were the 101st out of Fort Campbell and we were out of Fort Hood. Um, so whenever we left that April, they went back to Fort Campbell, we went back to Fort Hood and we were all kind of separate. Well, then they started making this movie and we started doing all the, all the premiere stuff for it. And I can't even remember how I initially got wrapped up in it. Um, but uh, this guy, one of the guys that got shot on our objective, his name's Nate Allen, and dude's a freaking hero. Um, he was actually going to try to retrieve um, one of our killed in action and wound up getting shot. And I worked on him whenever he got back trying to, the medics worked on him, had him stable. I kind of just monitored him for a little while um, to help kind of, you know, I think I changed a couple bandages or something until we could actually fly him out. But uh, I think he's actually the one that got in touch with me about the movie. And we started going really around the country. Um, I kind of handled the, I didn't handle, but I went to like the Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas region um, for premieres. Um, we even did like a big red carpet in Dallas. I mean, it was, it was nuts. Winona Judd was there. She sings the song on the soundtrack and all this but got involved with all the gold star families uh, from that. So gold stars are uh, the family members of those killed in action. So um, became really good friends with um, Elizabeth and Terry Burgess, who are my friend, Brian Burgess's parents. And he was killed that day. And then uh, Offren Arachaga, who we called AC, um, he got killed that day on the other objective. Um, his wife and I became really good friends through all that. But anyways, we raised a lot of money for an organization called Snowball Express. So whenever you see, yep, whenever you see the stuff talking about Gary Sinise flying all these kids to like Disney World or flying to Dallas, he's talking about Snowball Express. Um, and so anyways, we raised, just in McAllister, we raised over $3,000, I think, in one night. And then doing a, we, did a, we did the premiere and raised a bunch of money that night. Brian um, helped out a ton with that. Um, and then, uh, we did like a hero workout that we created the next day at the CrossFit gym. And, and then I think, I think the gym matched like up to like a thousand dollars of the donation or something. We wound up sending over like $3,000 there and which was like the equivalent of like two or three kids getting to go. And they go for like this four day weekend. I think they do it at Disney world now that, but at the time they were doing it in Fort Worth. I mean, they bring every band in every cool. And these kids just get a dream weekend. American Airlines rents out entire planes. So these kids don't get like a ticket and fly on a plane. The plane is just snowball kids and there's no rules on the flight. I mean, kids are climbing over the seats and they're hanging out in the, the luggage bins up above the seats and they get to go to the cockpit. I mean, they get to do whatever the hell they want and they're all gold star kids and they should get to. So uh, it was a really cool thing. So like through my, through my three deployments, I've got, um, several friends of mine that were killed that have kids. And so I, and especially once I've had them. So that's just like a thing that 
Like I'll, I'll do anything for a gold star kid. I don't have to have known their parents. I don't have to do anything. And, and I think most service members are the same way, but if a gold star kid or family member needs something, um, we'll just drop whatever it is that we're doing and go take care of it. And so that's kind of what snowballs about. So that's why it's always been a big deal. Um, I haven't, I haven't done anything for them in a, a year or two. Um, I may need to, but I'm doing a, an event in a few weeks, actually. So have you ever heard of the company Go Ruck? Yes. They do. Okay. So I'm doing one of their, one of their challenges, one of their 12 hour endurance events in like three or four weeks. But, uh, one of my really good friends, we're actually drill sergeants together. Um, is he, he went after we got done being drill sergeants, he went to special forces selection, became a green beret. Um, anyways, he just retired like a couple weeks ago and, uh, he's a, he owns a CrossFit gym in Colorado. Um, and he's been like basically programming and training to get me ready for this event, but he is doing the very, so mine's on March 27th on March 28th. He's doing an event called the grant. I think it's called the grand traverse or the great traverse, but he, it's a hundred mile endurance race and it's over a mountain pass in Colorado and he's either running or cross country skiing the whole hundred miles. Um, and doing it in a team. Yeah. He's, he's nuts. But, um, anyways, he's doing it to raise money for the green beret foundation. So they take uh, care of like our Green Beret uh, folks specifically. Um, and so it's a big deal to him. So um, so anyways, he's raising money for that. I've got the link in my Instagram bio and then I'll send it to you. Maybe we can plug it uh, yeah. with this, but I'd love to see him raise some more money. I think his goal is like $3,000. He's about halfway there. I'd like to see him just crush it. Cause he's, a, he's an amazing dude. He's doing, uh, he's doing some great things for the veteran community in Colorado now that he's retired um, physical fitness wise. And he's just a, he's a beast of a human. Like whenever he went to special forces selection, we never, it was never a thing like, Oh, I wonder if Will's going to make it. Like we knew he was going to make it. Like there was, there was no question. Um, and he's just a machine. And like whenever you go to his, uh, to his Instagram page, like all of his stories, he's running some mountain pass somewhere at like a 615, 630 uh, mile pace and talking into his camera like it's nothing. And he's kind of doing his thing, and there'd be snow and ice in his beard and whatever and doing it. So, uh, so yeah, definitely, uh, I definitely want to help him do that. And then um, he and I are starting to talk. I'm going to do something um, before the end of this calendar year that's going to be a pretty big endurance event. I don't know what yet. It's not going to be 100 miles. I don't have that in me. But, uh, but I'm going to do something big to raise money. Yeah. Uh, for I don't know, it probably won't be for the Green Beret Foundation just because I'm, I'm not a part of that community. Um, I want to help them with this, but I want to find another one um, out there to raise some money for to help out, maybe snowball again or, or something similar. So, yeah, if you if people want to see the hornet's nest, it's on Amazon. Um, so if you got Amazon Prime, you can access it for, you know, just because you have the subscription. Um, if not, I think you pay like $2.99 or something to stream it if you, if you look, but it's a it's a good movie. It's worth watching. I think it's uh, yes. they did a really good job. It's not uh, it's not too over the top. There's a lot of I get real sick of the veterans out. There's I'm sure you see them every now and then. There's a there's a small contingent, but unfortunately they're the loudest of this. I call them the thank thank me for my service guys, and they want to constantly be recognized for for serving their country, which is actually like exactly opposite of what we teach you know, which is, you know, one of our army values is selfless service. 
Yeah. Said that at one point on, I think a memorial, not a memorial, but a Veterans Day or or something. Mm-hmm. I remember you, you and I were talking, and you were like, uh, you know, the thank you for your service thing. You you're not really into that. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, it's not like it offends me. You know, if someone comes up no, and thanks no, no. for my service. I'm always, you know, it makes me feel good. But that's not why anybody that joined the military to try to be praised for it or to try to get something from, you know, feels like they're owed something because they served. Like, okay, well, you missed the entire point. Like, that's not that's not what it's about. You know, the the service itself. Like, I've just told you how hard it is to get into the army. Like, less than one percent of the American population serves in the military. Like, isn't that enough? Is the, you know, all that college money, you know, is, is that not enough? Do you have to have somebody constantly tell you how great you are to, to validate what you did? Like, nah, like, move on. Like, I think the most heroic thing somebody can do is something, you know, like Wilbur, my buddy, that I was just talking about, like, the guy just retired a month ago and he already found some other way to serve. You know, he's, he's already raising money for something else. And, and those are the type of that's and that's the majority of the veteran community, I think. Well, it's kind of hard for like a civilian to have an opinion, I think, either way on that. You know, so I'll just uh, listen to your opinion and go. With it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's kind of hard for me to say, well, yeah, you're right. You know, they shouldn't they shouldn't, you know, be they shouldn't be uh, acting like that or yeah. whatever. Like, I can't say that. Well, the good thing about, you know, in America right now. It's been since like World War II, in my mind, uh, that that veterans, people that are serving in the military, have been um, lifted up. You know what I mean? Seen. Yeah. As, as, oh, it's it's amazing. Yeah, and I, I, you know, from a perspective of uh, just a common guy or whatever, I there, I have to admit, I'm I'm really bad about I say bad about holding these guys not not hold them to a standard but like i view guys in the military as something a little bit more basically for what you were saying you know the the idea of doing it selflessly you know i mean yeah uh, like right now you live in germany um and, and i'm sure you're enjoying your time there and those kind of things like that but i mean you're doing it out of service you know what i mean you're doing mm-hmm. it um as a service so for me for for someone to consciously make that decision because you know it's obviously a you know, you you went into the military willingly, so uh, I mean, it was it was your decision to do that. But but to do it and to make that choice, I mean, you sh- there, there's a certain amount of in for me and my for my family anyway. There's a certain amount of prestige in our minds for folks like yourself, right? You know, I mean, because it's, it's yeah, and I'm like we are, you know, so. yeah. And, I, and I'm not saying people shouldn't be proud of their service or, or anything like that. I think they should. Um, and, and, and like I said, I'm not saying don't thank a veteran for their service, but I'm talking about the dudes that what, – what's a good example? Oh, Kobe Bryant died and died in a helicopter crash. Within 10 minutes, I had 20 people that I know on Facebook posting like, well, you know, there was a helicopter crash three years ago and, and – two soldiers died and nobody said anything about that. Like, okay, but this has nothing to do with it. Why does it, why are you looking to get offended? Right. And, and it's one of those things. It just, it makes me crazy. Or somebody, I think I heard somebody talking about it on another podcast, but one of the more popular posts like that would post about these Marines that died in a helicopter crash. And there was a lot of them, but the helicopter crash happened in 2005. Yeah. 
It made yeah. a lot of people think that it happened on the same day. Yes. Yes. This did not happen. This happened a long time. Like you said. But like, you know, we all know Kobe was, was Ben's hero or is Ben's hero. And yeah. so it's literally the equivalent of Ben posting something about Kobe, an American icon, dying way before his time, and then me getting mad about it and saying, well, you didn't say anything about this helicopter crash for the soldier. You're right. I didn't. I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. Next time before I, I say anything about my favorite athlete dying, I'll make sure that I go back and I acknowledge every single tragedy that's happened to it. You know, like, get the fuck out of here. It makes me crazy. <laughs> yeah, we haven't really talked about uh, Kobe Bryant dying on the podcast yet. Dude, I'm not- so I'm not a, I, was, I was not a Kobe super fan. He's my number two all-time you know, I think he's the number two all-time greatest, and I'll I'll listen to every argument about him being number one. I didn't think somebody like that dying would affect me like it did, and I didn't cry over it. I didn't miss work over it. But man, that that hit me hard. Really? Him die- and and with his kid, you know, I mean, that was tough. Dude, it was awesome uh, spending time with you. Yeah, uh, it was very it was awesome. Show finally, episode uh, yeah. one. This episode is brought to you by Black Line Insurance Group. Visit BlackLineInsuranceGroup.com. Ben at Black Line Insurance Group. And uh, just so happens, I'm Ben at Black Line Insurance Group. <laughs> yeah, welcome to my world. What uh, What do you plan on doing uh, in the future? I mean, when you when you uh, move back, what do you think is going to happen? Well, so I've got at least one move in the Army left. So I'll leave here. I'll be at 19 years in. Um, and we don't know where we'll go from here. I'll know about a year from now. Um, and then it's kind of by ear at that point. So I'm eligible for promotion at the end of this year. If I get selected for promotion, that'll keep me in at least another three. Um, and then after that, it kind of depends if I get that last promotion or not, or even if I, I may just be ready to be done at that point. And then, then I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. I got to find a real job, I guess. <laughs> Can't live off the retirement money? I won't be able to live off it, no. Um, it's not quite that good. Um, what it should allow me to do, though, is pay for a mortgage and, and all that comes with it and probably a, a car payment, and then my real job will handle the rest of it. So, And I'm good with that. Like That's, that's more than enough for me. Yeah, I was going to say, something tells me you're not going to have an issue finding something that you are going to want to do. You know, yeah, I just don't know what it is yet. And it's it's actually it's a daunting thing really? to yeah to think about. Like this is literally all I've ever done. As like I went to high school and then I joined the army, mm-hmm. and so now it's kind of a oh shit, what am I gonna do? Like I gotta go, I gotta go be a be an actual civilian. Oh, I mean, I look forward to it. I think it'll be really cool, really neat. Um, it's gonna be weird. My wife and I talked about it the other day to not have. The possibility of me having an extended absence like looming all the time you know like I mean I could get deployed at a moment's notice for you know I've gone I've been gone for 12 months straight three different times you know what I mean and so that always kind of looms out there and uh, it'll be it'll be a weird relief I think whenever that's not even a possibility like you know yeah I mean you know you've, you've had some extended absences that are Yes. You know, unplanned. So, you know, you know, kind of what that's like. And so yes. not having that as a, 
as a thing is you have it you know no but but you understand i mean you understand what that is right yeah yeah it sucks being gone is being gone period i don't care where you're at so i agree well say i agree well i can i can relate in that like the oil fields all other so yeah i can't imagine i did nursing for like a year and a half which was culture shock definitely but uh You know, it was like, uh, I ended up going back to, you know what I mean? I'm just like, damn, you know, this is, I know this. I don't have to learn anything on this. I already know how to do yeah. this. So they would be tough, man. Especially, like you said, doing it all this time. And, and of course, the oil feels a little bit more, um, you know what I say, lackadaisical than, than being in the military. So, uh, I mean, that's that's definitely, it's a culture in itself. So you're going to be out yeah. with the folk then, whatever you break out of there yeah i don't i don't know if the my most of my civilian friends will be able to to deal with me i may not have very many by the time i'm i'm done but they'll like, get rid of me he says he's like i won't i don't know how to live where i don't have uh some sort of like a pt requirement or something like that yeah maintain that he's dude like, i don't even have to think about what i wear every day like <laughs> it's i know exactly like it, don't even have to work don't even have to think about it like I get stressed out on Sundays, worried about what I got to put on. To, you know. <laughs> what do you want to plug, Lucas? Um, I will plug. I'll plug my niece's little thing. She's going to uh, San Diego. She, of course, she's been on here before, but she's going to San Diego. San Diego. Ava Rose. Yeah, here in uh, the singer, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's got a thing. She's gonna sing at this crap I should, if i'm gonna plug it i should know more about it i can't remember what it is right off the top of my head anyway she's been selected to go out there and sing for this uh global awareness something or other out there i think i'm not i'll have to i'll like give you the link and you can put it well just go ahead and start looking at it i'll go ahead and do my plug you can look go that ahead. up real quick i want to plug uh, once again the parkinson's run in april 26th it's on a sunday it's going to be Sunday afternoon, of course. Uh, Parkinson's, you know, affects a lot of people. And, you know, we're trying to gain awareness or raise awareness to it. I think there's a lot of people out there that have it um, that really have no support. And I just kind of want to let everybody know there is a support group. Um, and they also box. They also have a boxing class here at CrossFit McAllister, and um, if you look it up, boxing helps tremendously with people with Parkinson's. So I think that's really cool, and I haven't been asked to do this. I'm, I'm, it's solely from the heart, but, you know, my father-in-law, Larry, has Parkinson's, and uh, so we've learned a lot, you know, over the years after he's been diagnosed and trying to help gain awareness or raise awareness for uh, Parkinson's. So the run is April 26th. There's also a walk. And uh, you can, I mean, you can look it up on Facebook or Google or whatever to find out, to find more about, you know, uh, the run and here in McAllister on April 26th, Sunday afternoon. Well, that's all I know. I'm sitting here trying to give you time but you're so I'm not finding it dude. I can't find the thing on it well look her up Ava Rose Johnson yeah yeah my niece she's uh 
She's doing big things. She's been on the she's been on the podcast before. Well, she's going to sing. Is this the five thousand dollar a plate dinner that you're yeah. talking about? And well, Nathan told you that you know you can come if you want, but you have to pay for your yeah his his his, his meal and and his daughter's meal are paid for. But if I want to go, I have to pay five thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> are you down. going? <laughs> but yeah, but he told me at the uh, basketball game couple weeks ago or yeah, yeah a couple weeks ago about it and he said there's some other things coming down you know some other big things he didn't tell me exactly what but and he said you know and he told us on the podcast before he tells people he's got to make sure you know 100 percent that some of these opportunities are really happening because i think he i mean they get bombarded well, there's, right? they, there's several things that they're working on that they've mm-hmm. been contacted about doing. right but yeah like i said he didn't want to sit there and throw something out there and it might happen Right, but yeah, she's she got selected to sing at the uh, state tournament. I yeah, think, solid, and uh, you know all that stuff like that. I mean, she works hard. Then she picked up the guitar in like a week, and the first thing she did was write a song. I saw that as well. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, yeah, dude. I was never that talented. You know what I'm saying? I, mean, I, I still have never written a song worth hearing. So <laughs> I don't. I but uh, anyway, all right, do your plug one more time, Scott. Uh, so it's the Green Beret Foundation. Um, I will post. So if you go to my Instagram at MP Scott Morgan, it's a lame ass username, but it's been my internet username since I was 18. Um, it's in my bio. Um, it goes straight to, uh, my buddy's, uh, fundraiser. Um, and then he is at Jeremiah underscore Blackbeard. And I'll send you all that stuff. You can see it. He's got, he's got a lot of great stuff, but yeah. Um, even if you can just donate a couple bucks, it'll it'll go a long ways um, towards helping him meet his goal. And then uh, I'm sure he's going to be Instagram living while he's out, you know, doing this hundred mile trek, and um, it's it's pretty incredible. Yeah. And I'm just I'm doing that twelve hour thing. Doesn't even compare. We're just walking around with some heavy backpacks on and carrying some heavy stuff and and doing some PT. So that's gonna be really cool. getting after it. It's going to be cool. They center it around uh, the Battle of Frankfurt, actually. So you get like a history lesson as you do it. Yeah. So uh, it'll be cool. And then I'm looking at, like I said, I'm looking at some other longer endurance things to do um, later on this year. And I think I'm going to do a specific fundraiser. I'll throw that out to you whenever, whenever I figure out what it is. Awesome. Excellent. Well, I'm Ben LJ. I don't drink coffee podcasts. Scott Morgan, thanks for coming on. Thank you for your service. Yes. He Thank you guys for having me. Well, I'm saying it I told you that already. <laughs> you didn't listen to me at all. That's the thing I did. <laughs> Scott, good night. Good night. We'll talk to y'all later. Yes. Thanks for tolerating us, man. Yes. I appreciate it for real. Yeah. We're gonna have you that was fun, man. On again. Because I'm sure yeah. there's I'm sure we didn't even touch scratch the surface. Oh right. yeah, there, we could we could talk all day. Yeah, right. right. Or some something funny goes on. So I've been thinking you guys need to find – so you know how uh, Joe Rogan does – have you ever seen he does those fight companions? No. Okay, so he'll – if he's not doing like a UFC, if he's not like doing commentary, he'll get all of his comedian buddies in the room and they'll turn it on on pay-per-view and they call them fight companions. But they So they're supposed to be like commenting on the fights and what's actually happening. But what happens is, is they wind up off on these tangents uh, and they go down every rabbit hole imaginable instead of watching the fight. And it's, it's great. Just go, just go, 
Oh my God, it's so good. Especially like you know his nut ass buddy uh, Eddie Bravo, the jujitsu okay. guy. So you know he's into every conspiracy theory out there. Well, they get him drunk and then get him going, and it's just a freight train of the Earth's flat and um, Hillary Clinton's trying to murder everybody. And do you think we should do something like that? Yes, I just you got to figure out what the right thing is going to be. That's going to so. It works for them because you've got like fighters in the room because they'll have Brendan Schaub and you know yeah. maybe somebody else will come and so it it's what it does is it triggers weird conversations that you can't plan so right. like you guys got to you got to turn on a football game or something uh -huh. because so and so you know some announcer is going to say something that's going to trigger something you guys are just going to go down the rabbit hole of and it, it it'll be good and you can get you know get Trent in there with you or something and yeah you guys just wind up just twisting off in it yeah i think it would be cool and you can join us yeah i'll do it for sure it'll be like four in the morning so like whenever there's big fights on i get up at like 3 30 to oh, watch them you do yeah i'll go to bed early or i'll just like i'll kind of like nap through them you know like the deontay wilder uh yeah tyson fury fight yeah. i woke up right before it ended like i fell asleep in the second round sitting up straight and opened my eyes as Wilder got laid out. So, Wow. I can't believe anybody yeah. could fall asleep during that fight. That was an excellent fight. I was tired, man. But, but I was able to go back and watch it again. But, yeah. yeah. At 3 o'clock in the morning, I can fall asleep during anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, Brian and Jen came over and watched it with us. And she uh -huh. typically falls asleep. Yeah. Usually falls asleep during every single fight. Or, you know, during the night while we're watching, like, UFC or whatever. She'll fall asleep, and it's a joke amongst us all, you know, because we're like, "Oh, Jen asleep yet?" You know, she's over there laying down. You know, she was, she was over there laying down. I'm like, "Jen, you asleep?" No, I'm good. I'm, you know, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, "Okay," and I know two minutes later she could be asleep. She's gone. Yeah. yeah. But um, we we always watched them at her house, and she would just disappear. Yeah. Like, yeah. Ryan, is Jen okay? Oh yeah, dude, she went to bed like an hour and a half ago. <laughs> she didn't want anybody to hear her snore, I guess, or whatever. Yeah. So. But there's been a, a lot of times she just falls asleep where she's at. Brian was telling the story, you know, that night, the other night when we were watching the fights, he said, yeah, her and I watched uh, some comedy movie or comedy uh, show or whatever. And he said, you want to watch a movie or whatever? She's like, yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm good. You know, and he's like, okay. And he goes, right when I hit play, you know, I looked over at her and she was asleep. From what she I, gone. How the story went. But he was like, okay. And he turned it off. She, was, she woke up. She was like, no, 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 I'm good. And he was like, no, let's, we'll do <laughs> <laughs> I already know I'm watching this a lot, if I, you know, so anyways. All right. Well, let's wrap this up. Wrap it up, yo. Okay, so we're, we're good? We're good. All right. Thank you again, Scott. Appreciate it. It was yes. awesome. Yeah. This was a good yeah, one. Yeah, I appreciate it. This is a good one, I promise you. Yes, live from Germany. All right. Have a great day. I don't drink coffee podcasts. What is this? Have a great day. You didn't say have yourself a great day. Oh, have, have, yourself, have yourself a great day. We are the Adult Drink Coffee Podcast. Love your body.